good evening, everybody. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. A long time and a long life and a lot of shit going on. But got to keep on keeping on, baby. And I hope you've been keeping on. Taking care of yourself and each other. As always, still always working on the audio levels, so um, if something's not working, let me know. If it is working, let me know. Uh, happy to see at least one familiar face here. Uh, always a pleasure. Hoping I can uh, see a couple more. And uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and get started, because I, I, there's a, a lot going on in the world, a lot to get through. A lot to try to make sense of a lot of different things. Uh, I will note that uh, I've, I've been a little out of pocket lately from just uh, various life commitments, uh, searching for a new job, searching for uh, just some semblance of, of, of normalcy or sense. Uh, and on that too, before I even get started, i I have to give a public apology to uh, Marco, a.k.a. Socialist Pizza. Uh, last time I was on Colin, uh, we had a conversation and things got pretty heated. And uh, though I'm, I, you know, my position is what my position was, uh, you know, I was pretty drunk and being a dick. And if there's anything this world doesn't need more of right now, it's just being a dick, man. Like, there's there's no need for that. There's too much bad shit going on. Uh, but I will also note, I it, there's a uh, another call-in room going on right now <laughs> uh, that a, a person on, on call-in named Peter, who uh, has geopolitics as ethnopolitics and another show, uh, Judicial White Privilege. Uh, but he has a, a room now called Key West, Where is Bide? <laughs> And it's like, bitch, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm literally right here. But uh, what are the odds of that happening? Uh, that's that's pretty funny to me. Anyway, uh, so I want to, you know, the, the, the story that's been occupying pretty much everyone's minds since October 7th, um, and for many others before that, has been the, the ongoing crisis in Gaza. Uh it's no surprise that, or it's no surprise to anyone hearing this, that uh, Israel has been committing what amounts to a genocide in Gaza against the Gazan people and in other parts of um, the West Bank, uh, indiscriminately killing Palestinian civilians, blowing up infrastructure, uh, settling or setting the land for settlement, all of these things which are uh, being brutally documented uh, by the people of Gaza, uh, by uh, the actual uh, news networks that are able to get in there. I mean, uh, and Israel hasn't been hiding anything. Uh, their uh, assault has been blatant. They have multiple people, multiple senior officials who have made it clear that their goal is to eliminate Gaza to move all of the people out of Gaza, to ethnically cleanse the area and settle it, uh, to expand Israel from the river to the sea, 
these are all things that if you're listening to the show uh, now or in the future, uh, this is kind of the backdrop of where today's show is at. It, 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 well, is needed to understand what we're going to be talking about today, because uh, I think history is going to show, as it's already showing right now, that this is uh, one of the most horrific humanitarian crises we've ever been witness to, and that we've ever lived through. And the question becomes: when you're living through something like that. And when you're watching people actually live through something like that, what can be done to stop it? What can be done to actually help people? And what are the limitations of what can be done? Now, people are doing various different things to to try to intervene. People, um, you know, civilians are boycotting uh, Israeli businesses or businesses that are supporting the IDF or uh, the Israeli uh, military apparatus or their, their plans. People are uh, directly engaging in combat. Uh, oc- people, occupied peoples are fighting back. Uh, and then you have some people who are taking legal avenues to try to stop the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And among these people who are trying to stop this are uh, a delegation from South Africa who recently uh, went to the International Court of Justice, which is, uh, I'll explain more about what that is in a bit, but went to the International Court of Justice and filed a case against Israel, accusing them of committing genocide against uh, the Palestinian people. So on, there's, there's so much to unpack with what's, you know, the actual situation on the ground that's going on there, as well as what's happening in the courts and, and all this other stuff. But I want to focus now on my legal background. I want to put that to use and actually use my license as an attorney for just a bit to really talk about parts of this case that South Africa has filed against Israel parts of the, uh, to kind of explain to people in layman's terms what the significance of this filing is, to take the time to explain how the International Court of Justice functions, what is its significance, uh, and will its rulings actually do anything? What do its rulings do? And I I think this is going to have to be a multi-part series just because there's so much to unpack Today, we're not even going to get into the real specifics of South Africa's case against Israel. But if you want the conclusion to what I think about it, I think it's just about as rock solid as a case accusing someone of genocide can be. Uh, Israel, that, that, that should be no surprise to anybody who's listening. Israel has been blatant in what they're trying to accomplish here. They are not hiding the fact that they want. Palestinians out of there. And that just is what it is. So when you're that blatant, the evidence becomes pretty clear that you have the intent to commit uh, a genocide, which we'll go over what that means in a bit as well. But let's start with just, let's just talk about the International Court of Justice 
what it's about, what the purpose of it is. And I want to offer some kind of insights that I haven't heard really being offered anywhere else yet. And I think I haven't heard them being offered anywhere else, frankly, because I think people are looking at this case, even the people who are talking about this case against Israel. uh, They're looking at the case from the standpoint of, of just people who see an ongoing genocide happening, right? They're concerned about this case, which is absolutely understandable because I, I'm the same way. Uh, this case is, is, is crucially important. It is, uh, you know, the biggest sort of step I would say that we've seen from as far as like an international response to try to actually stop this. And I, you know, let me strike that because obviously the Houthis and uh, you know Yemen have been uh, balling out, really trying to stop this uh, from happening. So that's the biggest response I would say. But this is um, this court case is significant. But I, I think people are really looking at just the facts of this one case and not really looking at overall. Well, let me let me just say this. I I found some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a little bit of digging into the uh, some of the cases that are currently pending in the International Court of Justice. I think you're going to be very fucking interested in what some of the actors in this case, in this entire situation, have to say about genocide, what they have to say about um, the legal authority of people to stop it. I... I, I I think there are some things you're going to want to know. So let's start first off with just what is the International Court of Justice? Uh, Oftentimes called the Hague. The Hague is just the palace where it's located in the Netherlands. Uh, It's a building uh, where the International Court of Justice is actually located. Uh, But the International Court of Justice was founded in 1946 following World War II. It was created as a part of the United Nations, and it's one of the principal organs of the United Nations, which is basically saying it's uh, it's kind of like the branches of the international government. Right. In the United States, we have the three branches of government, the executive, the judicial and the uh, legislative. Same thing or there are similar branches or different kinds of branches in the United Nations, Um, one being the the uh, General Assembly, one being the Security Council and the other being uh, The Hague, the International Court of Justice. And it is the principal judicial organ of the International Court of Justice, Uh, meaning that it is the, uh, you know, they're in charge of all the judgments. They're the only branch or the only uh, organ that's seen cases. Uh, They're the equivalent of basically the Supreme Court in the United States. And because it is founded or created, the International Court of Justice was created as part of the United Nations, it is, it has some unique qualities to it. First off, uh, all UN member states automatically recognize the existence of the court and can call upon its services. So it has some inherent 
united or international legitimacy to it. Uh, that's just part of the game, right? It, it's, it's, it's part of the charter is that it is a UN member state uh, or, or all UN member states automatically recognize its existence. And it's really got two main roles in what it does. Uh, and what it does is serving as the highest international court in the land. And the first is, the first of its two roles is that it decides disputes between states. So if you are a sovereign state and you have another problem with another sovereign state and you want to, uh, you need some kind of legal discussion, whether you're talking about territories or borders or, you know, allegations of another state interfering with your sovereignty, you can file to uh, file a case between uh, before the International uh, Court of Justice. And if the other state consents, that case will be heard. Uh, the other main role of the International Court of Justice is that it responds to uh, kind of legal inquiries and questions from other UN member organizations. So this is kind of like an advisory role, uh, kind of the same kind of role that a general counsel would have at a company, right? If there are internally some questions, if if they need, if a nation has, you know, or, or uh, uh, sorry, not a nation, but a council, you know, if like the uh, security department, the security council of the UN has a question about whether or not they're allowed to do something legally, then they'll ask the UN uh, uh, ICJ. And the ICJ will look over the facts and decide, issue an advisory opinion, basically acting as like the in-house counsel, right? Uh, so it has these dual roles for the United Nations. And we're really only concerned with this first role, contentions between states, because that's what South Africa's filing against Israel is. That's what, as we'll see in a little bit, some of these other filings that are before the International Court of Justice concern. But that's the main role of the ICJ. Now, now it's, it's important to note here that the ICJ is not actually a criminal court. It is a court that can only, uh, it doesn't really try crimes. Typically, it, it doesn't have that jurisdiction. So it's not, it doesn't have the authority to punish a, a nation or an individual, really. Uh, there's some nuance to that, but that's traditionally, the ICJ is not a criminal court, right? And you may be wondering, well, what is the effect of an ICJ opinion? Well, if an ICJ rules in a contention, contention against two uh, sovereign nations, uh, they do not have an enforcement mechanism to, say, force the loser of that case to comply with the ruling. So what do I mean by that? They can tell, they can tell you if, you know, you have a case where uh, it's said that, well, Israel is committing genocide against the people of Gaza. They can find that, yes, indeed, Israel is committing genocide against the people of Gaza. They have some parts of the genocide convention, which we will get into, which is that's just the law that empowers um, that that makes it illegal to commit genocide. There's a specific law. We'll go into that in a bit. But even if the ICJ finds that 
you are uh, in the wrong in a case, it can't force the nation to comply with its ruling. States are sovereign. States can basically just say, well, we don't care and not have uh, the ICJ cannot do anything about it. Now, does that mean that it's completely meaningless? Not exactly. Uh, not exactly. Nations can uh, themselves band together to kind of force, uh, basically have that force of law to force another nation to s cease doing something. Uh, there's the Genocide Convention, which maybe it's time to go into, which there are certain articles as, as to how you're supposed to address when uh, a genocide is happening legally, what's supposed to happen or what the ICJ can do there. Maybe that's the place we go next. But the main thing to think of here or the main thing, I, I, I guess the biggest takeaway right now is that, um, you know, this this. The ICJ ruling, like all other rulings, really is mostly symbolic. The power resides where people believe it resides, as uh, what's his name, the bald guy in Game of Thrones would say. And as a little bit of an aside, let's just think about courts of justice generally, right? Look at the United States as an example. Technically, the courts in the United States do not have any real power when we look at it, right? If a president decides to disobey a Supreme Court ruling, who does the Supreme Court send to force the president to obey the ruling? The Supreme Court does not have an army. The Supreme Court does not have police officers. The police officers who do work in the court are kind of on loan because remember, police military, all of that falls within the purview of the executive branch. So those are the president's men. Yet somehow we still listen to the court, right? When the Supreme Court makes a ruling here, we listen. Why is that? Well, it's complicated, but courts generally do a pretty good job of legitimizing their own existence. If we take it all the way back to the beginning of justice systems and just think about justice generally, people in general have a primal sort of uh, feeling or a primal, a, kind of a primal sense of fairness. People want things to be fair. And that's been the case since the beginning of time, as far as we know. People don't like when shit is unfair. Everyone wants a fair shake. They want to be treated equally. They want uh, equal existence, equal opportunities. Uh, courts serve as a, a, a convenient sort of state solution to the enforcement of fairness. So at the end of the day, everyone kind of benefits in one way or another, in theory, from the existence of a court that dishes out justice fairly. At least that's it in theory, right? So when we know, um, you know, uh, I don't want to talk about Marbury versus Madison here, but there are particular cases in our own history in the United States, which 
basically uh, were cases which were ruled on. The justices in those cases came to the conclusions that they did because they recognized that had they come to a different conclusion, they wouldn't actually been a- be able to enforce that power, uh, enforce their decision, or the president would just ignore it, and that would delegitimize the court. But they came to decisions that basically preserved their own power while suggesting or carving out uh, a lane for their own legitimacy. In other words, they wrote an opinion where the people who were at risk of uh, ignoring the opinion got what they wanted, but at the same time, the court sort of solidified its power even more. Uh, I know that's very general, but I won't go into Marbury versus Madison, really, but keep that in mind. Keep that concept in mind when we think about the International Court of Justice in relation to Israel. Because we'll jump ahead a little bit, as we know, with this recent preliminary ruling that the International Court of Justice just passed regarding Israel, they passed in a 16 to 1 decision that South Africa had made a plausible case that Israel was committing a genocide. Now, that's a preliminary ruling, which is basically just a ruling that says we believe that South Africa has presented enough evidence to pursue an actual case where they must prove that Israel is committing a genocide. So it doesn't have a huge effect on currently what's going on in Gaza, which we'll also get into the reasons for that. But uh, keep in mind that a court is always trying to maintain its own legitimacy while not having the, the raw power to enforce their own decisions, which can explain, for example, why they've allowed this case to go forward, but why they have not ruled that a ceasefire needs to occur currently, which they should have according to the Genocide Convention, but let's go into the Genocide Convention, okay? Just to get to get into the meat of things. Uh, and I promise you, with some of the filings that I found, including the decision that came out today and a ruling that's going to be coming out on Friday, things are about to get very interesting with this ICJ strategy of, the, of South Africa. And I'm starting to think it's actually, you know, I've agreed with their decision to file since they filed it, but I think it's secretly brilliant. And I'm going to get into why. Now, there's so much to go, so much to go through. Let me just, let me jump back on it, okay? So the Hague, where the ICJ is located, uh, 15 justices from, all from different countries, make up the, the justices of the ICJ. Now, uh, They also have sometimes justices who can sit in ad hoc. Uh, These are in special circumstances, which I don't understand all of the reasons why they sit in ad hoc. I'm not sure why they had two justices sit in ad hoc for this uh, Israel case. But for all intents and purposes, when ad hoc justices sit on a case, they're equivalent to all other justices, right? It basically just means a couple other justices are ruling on the case for whatever reasons. Usually it's due to like conflicts of interest or, or whatever. But all these justices are from different countries. Um, I think they serve nine-year terms. I I can't recall, but 
I think we know enough about the ICJ now to get into the actual charges that South Africa filed, right? So South Africa, they filed a case against Israel alleging that Israel violated uh, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Uh, That's a specific law, uh, sometimes called the CPPCJ, I'm sorry, the CPPCG, or the Genocide Convention. And um, I'll read a bit of the, the, just a quick summary from, from Wikipedia to give some more background on that. Uh, the CPPCG is an international treaty that criminalizes genocide and obligates state parties to pursue the enforcement of its prohibition. It was the first legal instrument to codify genocide as a crime and the first human rights treaty unanimously adopted by the United Nations General Assembly on December 9th, 1948, during the third session of the United Nations General Assembly. So that's important. One, it was unanimously adopted. So every nation in the United Nations at that time agreed to adopt this law. Why does that matter? Because everyone thought genocide was really bad. It also matters that this occurred three years after the Holocaust and that the UN was really set up, remember, in 1946, which, gee, what happened, what had just ended the year before 1946? I don't know, World War II and a Holocaust against the Jewish people? So keep in mind, the history of the ICJ, the establishment of the the ICJ and the UN are absolutely historically linked to Hitler, the Holocaust, and World War II. We can't separate that, right? That's important to understand the significance of um, its historical significance. And let's also understand that one of the first things they adopted unanimously is the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. What does this mean? Basically, look at it this way. A large part of this court's existence is in response to one of the worst crimes we've ever seen committed on the planet, you know, the, the Holocaust. And a large part of its existence, its entire function really is to prevent shit like this from happening again. And all the nations in the United Nations unanimously agreed that, yep, this court, the whole point of what we're doing here is preventing genocide. In large part, the UN is about preventing genocide. In no insignificant part, you can say that is their purpose. So let's continue. The convention entered into force on January 12, 1951, and has 152 state parties as of 2022, including the United States and Israel. Um, so what is genocide? I'm sure we've heard this before. Other people have talked about this definition, but let's run through it very quickly. Article two of the convention, this is the genocide convention, defines genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such, a killing members of the group, B, 
causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So, reading off that list and thinking about what's happening, what Israel is doing in Gaza, you don't have to be a lawyer if you've seen any of these videos that the Palestinians are, are showing or that the, the Israeli IDF soldiers are showing themselves. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer to figure out, wow, um, I'm pretty sure Israel is doing all of these things. And South Africa decided, well, we're going to file this. We're going to file this because we're going to file this case because we think Israel has violated all of these things. And, and here are the crimes. Article 3 of the Genocide Convention defines the crimes that can be punished under the convention. And now these are the things that, uh, okay, they can be punished under the Genocide Convention. A, genocide, which, okay, no shit. <laughs> I would think if you have the Genocide Convention, the first thing that can be punished under the Genocide Convention would be genocide. So that makes sense. But B is conspiracy to commit genocide. C is direct and public incitement to commit genocide. D is attempt to commit genocide. And E is complicity in genocide. And this is where it gets interesting. Because now, even if South Africa does not prove or the evidence does not show that Israel is committing an actual genocide. Well, we have a lot of statements from Israeli officials and military members showing that maybe they're conspiring to commit genocide when they're saying from the river to the sea is where Israel will expand. When they're saying um, these are human animals and should, should be acted like such. When we see the destruction of all of Gaza, and 90 some odd percent of the population is, uh, is, is homeless or, or uh, 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 have been uh, displaced. When you see the destruction of universities, the destruction of all the mosques, when you hear all the statements that have been made, direct and public incitement to commit genocide is at play, and attempt to commit genocide is at play. So this is important because a lot of the blowback or a lot of the pushback from Israel has been, well, we were just defending ourselves, you know, Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. But look, defending yourself is not an excuse to commit a genocide or attempt to commit a genocide or conspire to commit a genocide or incite people to commit a genocide. So, so this case has teeth or South Africa's teeth, ha, uh, uh, case has teeth against Israel because uh, it doesn't have to be just genocide. It could be any of these things, including complicity in genocide, which enter the United States. Now, here's a here, here's a little thought experiment. If an ally of yours, an ally state of yours, is doing what Israel is doing in Gaza, 
and you are providing them with air support. You're providing them with intelligence. You're providing them with weapons. You're providing them with money. And that ally of yours is ruled to be engaged in a genocide. Are you complicit in that genocide? You very well could be. You very, very well could be. So now the the uh, the U.S. the stakes are high for the U.S. here too. Don't get it twisted. Uh, this is a big, big deal. Now, I want to get to some of the juicy stuff here because usually I would I, I would want to talk about okay, let's talk about the merits of the actual case. But I think let's just take the merits of the case as a given for the moment, right? Um, I don't think anyone here is going to disagree with the merits of South Africa's case alleging that Israel is committing a genocide, right? We'll get into that in another episode. What I need for people to understand and what I'd really like to discuss right now is uh, some of the strategic points of what's going on and some of the... um, well, why I think this is actually a secretly brilliant move by South Africa. Because the court issued a ruling today. Not a ruling that has to do with uh, Israel and Gaza directly. But the court has issued a ruling today that talks about genocide a little bit, and I can kind of see where things are going, or I have a feeling where I think things will be going, right? So in a ruling that the court issued today, they said charges of exceptional gravity, such as the crime of genocide, require proof at a high level of certainty. In other cases not involving allegations of exceptional gravity, however, the court has applied a less exacting standard of proof. Well, what ruling was this in? Well, you may recall that before October 7th, there was another war that America's politicians were obsessed with, a war involving Russia and Ukraine. And you can bet your ass that both parties have filed claims before the International Court of Justice against each other, both involving this war and the lead up to this war in Ukraine. So now we're going to the war in Ukraine. Let's, let's, this is, this is what I find fascinating that people are not talking about this. And I, I I think people are not talking about this because again, uh, I don't think you have a lot of lawyers who are looking at this, right? Um, I think a lot of people are looking at this through the lens of, uh, either laymen or, or journalists or the like, right? We're looking at Israel and Palestine the whole time, but I this this is just blowing my mind. I'll 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 just get into it, right? So there are two cases that I want to talk about that involve Ukraine and Russia, and the first is a case filed in the International Court of Justice on January sixteenth, two thousand seventeen. So this even predates the war against Ukraine and Russia, right? What we have here is uh, in 2017, 
January of 2017, a representative of, of Ukraine filed a case. The case is called the application of the International Convention for the suppression and the fin- of the financing of terrorism and of the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, Ukraine versus the Russian Federation. Now, in this case, Ukraine filed a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice to hold the Russian Federation liable for committing acts of terrorism and discrimination against Ukraine. And again, this predates that war. So the lawsuit alleges violations of the Terrorist Financing Convention and International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Now, this case has been pending since before the war, right? It's a case from 2017, and the ICJ issued its ruling in that case today. Today being January 31st, 2024. So between the time that that case was filed and decided, an entire war broke out between Russia and Ukraine, and both countries and their people have been changed irrevocably. So if you're relying, I, I just want to say here, if we're relying on the International Criminal, or, or Court of Justice to put a swift end to Israel's genocide against the Palestinians, we're going to be waiting for a long time. Again, that doesn't make it pointless, but it's important to note, you know, people have said these things move slowly through the courts. This thing, uh, an entire war broke out between the time Ukraine filed this case and had their decision rendered today. And I have not been able to. The case is so new. It's 117 pages long. And I found it maybe two hours ago. I've skimmed through it, but I haven't actually been able to go over the particulars of that case. I don't know what the ruling actually says, but it's 117 pages long. And I'm going to go look into the backgrounds of the proceedings or the decision is 117 pages long. I'm going to look at the decision, look to the background of the proceedings, but I'm going to follow up on that case and its rulings and its, its uh, you know, applicability to Israel and, and Palestine once I've had the opportunity to digest it. But I want to draw your attention to that case because I have a feeling <laughs> that the, the, the situation or the, 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 the war between Russia and Ukraine is going to somehow play a role in the case that South Africa has against Israel and Gaza. And why do I say that? Because there is another case between Ukraine and the Russian Federation. And guess what is guess what it alleges, folks? Guess what the allegations are in that case? Guess. Anyone want to guess in the chat? The first one was for terrorism, terrorist financing convention, and international convention on elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. This case filed in 2022, February 2022. So after the war in Ukraine and Russia had broken out, this case is titled Allegations of Genocide Under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Ukraine versus the Russian Federation. There's already a pending genocide case before the International Court of Justice, and it has to do with Ukraine and Russia. So I'm going to talk a little bit about 
the specifics of this case because it's fascinating and I think it's going to have a lot of implications. It will obviously have implications on the case between Israel and Palestine because one, let's be real, um, the case is going to have to make a ruling on whether or not genocide is occurring between Russia and Ukraine. And that's going to play a big role on how they rule with Israel and Gaza. Um, and that's because of the concept of precedent. So I don't know how much I have to explain precedent, but I, I'll go through it a little bit briefly. When courts issue a decision, that decision becomes a sort of binding law. Uh, if you're the Supreme Court, right? Uh, all Whatever interpretation that the Supreme Court comes up with on how the Constitution should be interpreted will be binding on all lower courts from that point on because it establishes a precedent. A precedent, a legal precedent is established. Uh, the ICJ here has another case pending, which will probably be decided before the Israel and uh, South Africa case on how to interpret what is a genocide. And it's going to be decided in terms of Ukraine and Russia. So I want to go into this case a bit. And then I have a feeling I'm not, I'm going to speak for myself, but legally there's some legal questions in this case that are going to, that blow my fucking mind. And they, they might blow yours too if I'm able to convey the importance of this enough. So I'll talk about this case a bit. This is this, this case, again, February 2022. It was submitted by Ukraine against Russia following the latter's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And it was submitted because Russia, if you recall, sought to justify its invasion of Ukraine in part by claiming that Ukraine was engaged in acts of genocide within the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, uh, I forget how to say this, Donetsk, Donetsk Oblast. If you remember, you, uh, you, Russia said that Ukraine's committed genocide, we have to invade them to stop it. And Ukraine said that these claims gave rise to a dispute under the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide and based its application on the ICJ's jurisdiction to resolve disputes involving the convention. And on March 16th, 2022, the court ruled that Russia must immediately suspend the military operations in Ukraine while waiting for the final decision on the case. Now, I include that detail for two reasons. One, uh, Russia did not suspend its military operations in Ukraine following this preliminary ruling. And as I said before, uh, the ICJ does not have the binding authority against any nation. But again, this case is different, right? This is a case where Russia is accusing the Ukraine of genocide. Ukraine now has, has countersued and accused Russia of committing genocide against Ukrainian people. And I want to read from the press release from the ICJ uh, to give us a little more insight into this case. Uh, this is from February 27th of 2022. In its application, Ukraine contends, inter alia, that the Russian Federation has falsely claimed that acts of genocide have occurred in the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk prop, uh, oblasts of Ukraine. And on that basis, recognize the so-called 
Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic, and then declared and implemented a special military operation against Ukraine. Ukraine emphatically denies that such a genocide has occurred and states that it submitted the application to establish that Russia has no lawful basis to take action in and against Ukraine for the purpose of preventing and punishing any purported genocide. In the application, Ukraine also accuses the Russian Federation of planning acts of genocide in Ukraine and contends that Russia, quote, is intentionally killing and inflicting serious injury on members of the Ukrainian nationality, the actus reus of genocide under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. Actus reus, just Latin to basically mean like the act required. The applicant seeks to found the court's jurisdiction on Article 36, Paragraph 1 of the Statute of the Court and on Article 9 of the Genocide Convention, to which both states are parties. Together with the application Ukraine filed a request for the indication of provisional measures pursuant to Article 41 of the Statute of the Court and Articles 73, 74, and 75 of the Rules of the Court, in which it requests the court to indicate provisional measures, quote, in order to prevent irreparable prejudice to the rights of Ukraine and its people and to avoid aggravating and extending the dispute between the parties under the Genocide Convention. So there's a little more here. I think we get the case. Basically, Russia, Ukraine is saying Russia is wrong for accusing us of genocide. And in fact, we think they might be planning to commit a genocide and actively committing a genocide against us. That's the basics of this case. Now, this decision is going to be rendered, or a preliminary decision. Let me get the exact part right. This is from the ICJ's website, okay? On Friday, February 2nd, 2024, that's this Friday, motherfucker, the International Court of Justice will deliver its judgment on the preliminary objections raised by the Russian Federation in the case concerning allegations of genocide under the conventions on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide, Ukraine versus Russian Federation. There's a decision coming out on this shit Friday. Not on the full merits of the case, but on the preliminary uh objections raised by the Russian Federation. So we're going to get a lot more insight into the ICJ and what they think, how they define genocide and the likes on Friday. And this is a case that could be decided before the Israel case and the uh, 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 South Africa's case against Israel. And now here's the real thing. You know, I said I was going to try to blow your minds or what I said, this blew my mind. This is the part that really blew my mind is not necessarily that Ukraine and Russia are, you know, basically both accusing one another of genocide and that that's also a case uh, before the international court of justice. But I said before that American politicians were obsessed with one war before this war or not even a war, this massacre, this genocide that Israel's committing before October 7th, they were obsessed with this war, right? Do you think that the United States has just sat idly by while Ukraine and Russia are countersuing each other for genocide in the International Court of Justice? Do you think the United States would just stay out of that? 
let two sovereign nations just oh, decide for themselves. Oh, they're having a little, they're having a fight amongst each other, having a little war. We're not going to get involved. No, that's not what the U.S. does, baby. You know what the U.S. does? It talks too much and it gets involved too much. It doesn't mind its own fucking business sometimes. And guess what? In this case, this 2022 case where Ukraine and Israel, or I'm sorry, Ukraine and Russia are both accusing one another of genocide, 32 nations have intervened in this lawsuit between Ukraine and Russia. 32 nations. Now, in the legal world, intervening has a very particular meaning, right? It basically means, um, I want to get this right. So let me read some of this from just the Cornell lawsuit, uh, law school website. But intervening is entry into a lawsuit by a third party into an existing case who was not named as an original party, but has a personal stake in the outcome. So the non-party who intervenes in a case is called an intervener. And the intervener usually joins the suit by filing a motion to intervene, which must be timely and include a statement for the grounds for the intervention and a pleading of the relevant claims and defenses. So what does that mean? Uh, If there is a case being decided upon that directly interests you and will directly affect you, uh, you have the right or you have the opportunity to try to intervene in that case to say, hey, we want to be involved in this case. We want to be made a, a party because this judgment is going to affect us. And I said, in this case between Ukraine and Russia, where each nation accuses the other of genocide, 32 nations have intervened. And among those nations are the UK, Germany, and the United States. Each of which, let me remind you, or let me say, are nations which are now arguing that Israel cannot currently be committing a genocide because they are, as a nation, immune to such charges given their history as victims of genocide. So what does this mean? Well, <laughs> for, for me, at least, well, uh, let, me, let me just say, what it means is we could see a very recent example of exactly what the USA thinks about the genocide convention, the charges of genocide between Russia and Ukraine, and the ICJ's authority to stop genocide, should they find one occurring. And boy, oh boy, do I want to walk you through parts of this. Now, you could tell me if this is getting too in the weeds, but basically, we have a record of what the United States thinks of the Genocide Convention and the ICJ's authority and obligation to stop genocide when it's happening. We already said what the fuck we think about genocide. We already said it. And we filed this. We have the filings. And look, you can look all this up. Again, I haven't heard this point being mentioned anywhere. And I think it's because, you know, people are looking at this situation from a standpoint of, of, Israel committing a genocide on Gaza. Totally understandable. But from a legal standpoint, or, or not even from a legal standpoint, I'm surprised it's it's right here on their website. It's right here, International Court of Justice. You can click into that case. You can click into the Ukraine versus Russia. 
And guess what? You can look at all the people who have intervened, all the countries who have intervened, and you can look at what the fuck they filed in court. So now we have an on-the-record statement from the United States about what they think constitutes a genocide and what they think the powers of the ICJ are. And what have they said? Well, let's walk through a little bit of this. First, big takeaways, big takeaways, big things, big things, right? The United States, first of all, says, uh, let me move this screen over, but says, uh, first and foremost, in this very official filing before the International Court of Justice, that the USA considers itself a party of the Genocide Convention. Remember, to intervene in a case, you have to show that you have a personal stake in it, You that it's going to affect you. This ruling is going to have an effect on you. The United States says this ruling will have an effect on us because we are members of this convention and we abide by it and believe in it and rely on its protections. So that's step one. The USA, to the extent that it would now want to claim that, oh, well, the Genocide Convention shouldn't apply to us in this situation with Israel. Motherfucker, you've already said that you are a party to the Genocide Convention, and that is the basis of your intervention. So you, you've already admitted here. here, here here's, here's what it says. Uh, uh, the United States deposited its instrument of ratification to the convention in accordance with Article 9 of the convention on November 25th, 1988. The United States remains a party to the convention. So, oh my God, he admit it. Oh my God, he admit that he's part, that, that we're a part of this. But here's where shit gets even more interesting to me, right? The United States also says that the Genocide Convention sets forth the definition of genocide and the contracting party's obligations with respect to the prevention and punishment of genocide. So not only are they admitting that they're a party to, uh, to uh, the Genocide Convention, that it concerns them, they're admitting and saying that the Genocide Convention sets forth our rights and or our obligations with respect to preventing genocide and punishing genocide. And what exactly do they have to say here? Uh, this will get a little in the weeds, but I want to read just their words. This is paragraphs 21 of 20 uh, through 26 or 25 of their uh, intervention motion. So they say, the Genocide Convention in Article 1 confirms that genocide, whether committed in a time of peace or time of war, is a crime under international law, which the contracting parties, these are the parties who have agreed to be under the Genocide Convention, undertake to prevent and to punish. As the court has previously explained, the origins of the convention show that it was the intention of the United Nations to condemn and punish genocide as, quote, a crime under international law, unquote, involving a denial of the right of existence of entire human groups, a denial which shocks the conscience of mankind and results in great losses to humanity, and which is contrary to moral law and the spirit and aims of the United Nations. The first consequence arising from this conception is that the principles underlying the convention are principles which are recognized by civilized nations as binding on states. 
even without any conventional obligation. A second consequence is the universal character both of the condemnation of genocide and of the cooperation required, quote, in order to liberate mankind from such an odious scourge, unquote. The United States notes that the court has interpreted Article 1, and it's per in particular its undertaking to prevent genocide, to create obligations distinct from those that appear in the subsequent articles of the convention, which primarily addresses the punishment of genocide by individuals. This includes, in the court's view, an obligation on contracting parties to, quote, employ all reasonable all means reasonably available to them so as to prevent genocide so far as possible, unquote, recognizing that a contracting party, quote, may only act within the limits permitted by international law, unquote. In this regard, the court has recognized that, quote, the notice of due diligence, which calls for an assessment in concerto, is of critical importance, unquote, and emphasized that a, quote, a state's obligation to prevent and the corresponding duty to act arise at the instant that the state learns of or should normally have learned of the existence of a serious risk that genocide will be committed, unquote. These motherfuckers are saying out loud that once you know that a genocide is committed or is being committed, you have an obligation to act. They are, watch the way the United States is going to try to walk this shit back. This again, this is a filing from 2022. This is two years ago. The United States has said on record, hey, we're members of this genocide convention. We trust in this court's or we believe this court's authority to stop genocide. We believe it's a scourge against humanity and, 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 and a moral, uh, you know, morally disgusting to commit genocide. And we have recognize an obligation of all the contracting parties to the genocide convention to quote employ all re means reasonably available to them so as to prevent genocide so far as possible so what does this mean well it means uh <laughs> we'll get more into what it means but let's just say this. Uh, the United States, <laughs> in, in uh, a rush to condemn, to, to see an opportunity to just really shit on Putin one more time, has now publicly accepted or, or implied that it accepts the authority of the International Court of Justice, especially as it concerns allegations of genocide, and also accepted as a contracting party to the Convention Against Genocide, that there is an obligation of all other contracting parties to stop a genocide that's happening or intervene. And now they're just given weapons and ammo and money to Israel while this is happening. That's going to be a hard thing to explain. That's going to be very hard to explain, very difficult to explain. I want to continue. There's more here. Uh, listen to this shit.
these motherfuckers, man. This is paragraph 23 of, again, this is the, I'm reading from the United States, basically petition to intervene in the case between Ukraine and Russia concerning Ukraine and Russia's cross allegations of genocide, which was filed in 2022. And again, if you want to file the, follow this with me, uh, go to the International Court of uh, Justice's website. There's going to be a ruling on this case Friday. But paragraph 22, this is where shit gets crazy to me. The United States notes that the court has interpreted Article 1. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, did I read that? No, I, I read that already. 23. Um, Article 2 defines the crime of genocide as five as any of five acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. The United States ratified the convention with inter, with inter alia, the understanding that the term intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, ethical, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such means the specific intent to destroy in whole or in substantial part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such by the acts specified in Article 2. And the understanding that acts in the course of armed conflicts committed without the specific intent required by Article 2 are not sufficient to constitute genocide as defined by the convention. So that's probably where they're going to try their wiggle room. But here's where I, I, paragraph 24 is where I find it interesting. The United States understandings are consistent with the court's interpretation of intent to destroy to mean a dolus specialis that must be present in addition to the intent required for each of the individual acts involved. An interpretation of in part to mean a substantial part of the particular group. The term substantial part is defined in the legislation that implements the United States obligations under the convention to mean a part of a protected group of such numerical significance that the destruction or loss of that part would cause the destruction of the groups as a viable entity within the nation of which such group is a part. However, the United States recognizes that the court in assessing whether the allegedly targeted part of a protected group is substantial in relation to the overall group has taken into account both the quantitative element of and evidence regarding the ge geographic location and prominence of the alleged targeted part of the group. Finally, the United States, like the court, understands destroy in Article 2 to mean the physical or biological rather than cultural destruct destruction of a national ethnical, racial, or religious group. Article three lists genocide and related acts. Well, let me explain that a little bit. So now the United States is saying, uh, well, we understand this destroying or attempt to destroy people as physical or biological. The cultural destruction of a national ethical relation, all that, that, that is not what we believe here. Now, this is where their wiggle room is going to try to come in, right? This is where the United States is going to try to argue that Israel is not actually committing genocide because, sure, they're bombing churches, they're bombing hospitals, sure, they're bombing universities, but you can destroy a culture all you want. You have to destroy people, right? So this is the only argument the United States is going to have available to them because, again, they've already accepted the fact that they're members of the Genocide Convention and the court has the the jurisdiction to make the rulings on it. So, and, and where's this last part that I saw that was inter interesting? Um, well, 
I'll get through the rest of the United States big positions on this. Uh, here's another part, though. Article 3 lists genocide and related acts that shall be punishable under the convention, and Article 4 requires the punishment of persons guilty of committing genocide or any of the other acts enumerated in Article 3. Taken together, these articles generally set forth the scope of the subject matter the genocide convention is intended to address. So they're accepting the genocide convention in Article 3 and Article 4 as far as punishments go. So they're implied, the, the, the implication here is that they're accepting the International Court of Justice's authority to punish genocide. So the U.S. considers itself a party to the Genocide Convention. The Genocide Convention sets forth the definition of genocide and the contracting party's obligations with respect to the prevention and punishment of genocide. And then there's two more points that the United States uh, makes in this filing. The first being that the Genocide Convention does not authorize a contracting party to commit aggression against another contracting party on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide. Which is very interesting. We'll get into that in a bit. And then the last thing that the United States finally says is that the Genocide Convention confers jurisdiction on the court concerning disputes between the contracting parties relating to the interpretation, application, or fulfillment of the convention, including those relating to the responsibilities of a state for genocide. So that's the big one, right? They say, guess what, court? We, the genocide, it is the United States position that the Genocide Convention authorizes you to actually decide who's committing the genocide, uh, what the fulfillment of the party should be in preventing that genocide and the responsibilities of each state for a genocide. The United States can't back out now on that. They're stuck. They're stuck in that fucking position, right? But I really want to get into this other one real quick. This, this, this point that the United States claims or, or agrees that the Genocide Convention does not authorize a contracting party to commit aggression against another contracting party on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide. Now, in the context of Ukraine versus Russia, you can understand the United States position as this. Remember, this case between Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia is a case where Russia justified its invasion of Ukraine by claiming that Ukraine were committing genocide against um, the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, oblasts. So Russia said, Ukraine's committing a genocide. We have to stop it. We're going in. Now, we're not getting into the facts of whether or not that was occurring. Frankly, I don't know everything that was going on in Ukraine really before Russia invaded. I, I, I... We've talked about it. I've talked about, you know, I have other uh, episodes where I've gone into how I think we've responded to that conflict being ridiculous, how uh, we've had opportunities for peace following the war in that nation that we've uh, interfered with. But regardless, the justification for Russia invading Ukraine was an alleged genocide. The United States is now saying that the Genocide Convention does not authorize 
a contracting party to commit aggression against another contracting party on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide. So they're saying, Russia, you don't have the right to invade Ukraine under the pretext of preventing a genocide or punishing Ukraine for a genocide. And the United States makes some arguments in here, and we can get into the particulars of those arguments. Uh, you know what? It's a couple of paragraphs. I can read it, but I want to make this point first. Because what has Israel's defense been this whole time in justifying its attacks and justifying its genocide? Well, it's not October 7th is a huge part, right? They were attacked on October 7th. That's undeniable. You can argue it's more defensive in nature. But what have you heard time and time again these Zionists say about why they need to eliminate Hamas, why they need to destroy Gaza? What have they been saying? Well, they teach their children to hate us. They're trying to eliminate us from the planet. They want to wipe all Jews off the planet. The Hamas charter says that all Jews should die. There could be no Jews in, in the Middle East. Israel has been claiming that everything they need to do, basically, is to preserve themselves because they're going to be, they're preventing the genocide against themselves, you see. They are, they, they can't let Hamas wipe them out. They're going to genocide us. That's what Israel's saying. The United States has already filed a document saying preventing or punishing a genocide is not a good enough reason to commit acts of aggression. So what does this mean? If the International Court of Justice, like all of us, starts to see Israel's acts as genocidal, starts to see their aggression as, as, as overly aggressive, as too much force, then Israel, no matter how much they claim that they're trying to prevent their own genocide of their own people, the United States has already filed a document saying, well, that's not a good enough pretext to be aggressive towards another country. This shit can be flipped back against the United States so quickly is what I'm saying. The positions that they took here, because they're going to argue too that, oh, we're not complicit in a genocide because we are helping our ally nation defend itself and its sovereignty. But if the purpose of that defense, one, they're already saying that, uh, you know, aggression is not a reason to commit genocide and Preventing the genocide is not a reason for aggression. They're stuck. They can't, they can't logic themselves out of their position. They've basically said, they, they, they've filed saying that, look, um, let's, let me read what they said, but they've basically represented to the International Court of Justice that um, no party can unilaterally just start invading another country and killing all of its people and justifying their war based on the threat of genocide, which is fascinating. It's, it's really, a, it, it, the position that they're taking is, it, if, if you're having trouble like following 
what I'm saying, because I'm not being entirely clear. Just know this. The United States, in its haste to really say fuck you to Russia and the International Court of Justice and get behind their boy of Ukraine, has really taken some positions concerning genocide and the Genocide Convention that are going to fuck them in the ass when it comes to Israel. You cannot be consistent. You cannot hold this position that you just filed in the International Court of Justice concerning Russia and Ukraine, and you cannot square that circle with what you have, uh, what you now must say about the interpretation of the Genocide Convention and the likes to prevent yourself from being charged in the complicity of genocide in Israel. Secretly, so when I say the South African filing is secretly brilliant, I think they they had to know that this other filing was there. They had to know. They had to look at. I guarantee some motherfuckers in, in their uh, their legal team looked up, you know, while they're doing legal research or something to to to, uh, to um, bolster their case against Israel, found this case found the United States position that they had filed in regards to Russia versus Ukraine and said, oh, we got them too. They're not going to be able to get out of this. But let me read exactly what the U.S. says in regards to, um, in regards to this, uh, uh, the Genocide Convention does not authorize a contracting party to commit aggression against another contracting party on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide. Again, this is paragraphs 26 of 20 or through 29 of their filing uh, to intervene in the Ukraine versus Russia case <clears throat> filed in 2022. So the United States says this, while the structure and negotiating history of the convention make clear that it is principally concerned with individual criminal responsibility for genocide and the other acts enumerated in article three, the court has observed that the, that the convention also prohibits contracting parties from committing through their organs or persons or groups whose conduct is attributable to them such acts. So number one, groups and persons are also um, uh, uh, prevented from committing genocide under the convention. In this regard, the court has viewed the convention as reflecting a duality of responsibility and contemplating the possibility of state responsibility for genocide and the other acts enumerated in Article 3. In Article 3. In recognition of the exceptional gravity of allegations that a contracting party is responsible for genocide or other acts enumerated in Article 3, the court has observed that it must be, quote, fully convinced, end quote, that such allegations, quote, have clearly been established, end quote. In the absence of a state plan expressing the intent to commit genocide, the court has noted that to infer the existence of such intent from a pattern of acts governed by Article 2 of the convention, quote, it is necessary and sufficient that this is the only inference that could reasonably be drawn from the acts in question, unquote. The court likewise has set a high bar for establishing that a contracting party has breached its obligations to prevent or punish genocide, requiring, quote, proof at a high level of certainty appropriate to the seriousness of the allegation, end quote. So a couple things in here. One, high bar for saying that a state, that there's a state plan to express genocide. 
necessary and efficient that it is the only inference that could reasonably be, be drawn from the acts in question. So that is, there's a lot of wiggle room for the ICJ in the Israel versus Gaza case to say, well, we can't say that the whole state wanted to commit a genocide. But honestly, Israel's making it real hard to to like uh, find any other conclusion. When you have all these state actors who are clearly stating that, hey, we want to commit a genocide right now. But the other thing here, too, is that USA is acknowledging that the court has the potential authority to act against a state for uh, that's responsible for genocide. I'll continue. The Genocide Convention expressly provides contracting parties recourse where they believe another contracting party is responsible for genocide or for any other of the acts enumerated in Article 3 of the Convention or has failed to prevent or punish such acts. Article 7, I'm sorry, Article 8 of the Genocide Convention provides that contracting parties, quote, may call upon the competent organs of the United Nations to take such action under the Charter of the United Nations as they the competent organs of the United Nations consider appropriate for the prevention and suppression of acts of genocide or any of the other acts enumerated in Article 3 of the Genocide Convention. As the court has previously observed, Article uh, 8 is the only article after Article 1 that expressly addresses the prevention of genocide. Article 9 further provides that disputes between the contracting parties relating to the interpretation, application, or fulfillment of the present convention including those relating to the responsibility of a state for genocide or for any of the other acts enumerated in Article 3, shall be submitted to this court at the request of any of the parties uh, to the dispute. No provision of the Genocide Convention, properly interpreted in good faith, explicitly or ex implicitly or explicitly authorizes a contracting party acting on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide to commit aggression, including territorial acquisition resulting from aggression. Let me read that last bit again, because this is what I'm trying to fucking say here. No provision, this is the United States provision, uh, position on the Genocide Convention. This is what they've represented to the International Court of Justice. They've said, look, we can use Article 8 and call upon the United Nations. Contracting parties to the Genocide Convention can use Article 8 of the Genocide Convention to call upon the United Nations to use the competent organs, which the United Nations considers appropriate for the prevention and suppression of acts of genocide. So the United States is saying, look, if you suspect there's a genocide going on, if there's some shit going down, we, we the member states, should go to you, the United Nations. We should go to you and you should determine the appropriate course to prevent or suppress acts of genocide. So they're saying it's the authority and the sole authority of the United Nations to suppress and prevent acts of genocide. Russia can't just choose to invade a country to prevent because genocide is happening. But let's read exactly what their position is here again. In 29, paragraph 29, no provision of the Genocide Convention properly interpreted in good faith explicitly or implicitly authorizes a contracting party acting on the pretext of preventing or punishing genocide to commit aggression, including territorial acquisition resulting from aggression. Can I get a fucking amen to that? When Israel is out here trying to now say, oh, we, the attacks against Hamas that wants to eliminate us, 
they want to genocide us. That's why we have to get rid of all the people in Palestine. The United States has already said the pretext of preventing or punishing your own genocide or genocide does not authorize you to commit aggression, including territorial acquisition resulting from aggression. Look, if there's a UN motherfucker who is working in uh, the Biden administration, I know there's someone who's actually familiar with this shit, who's familiar with this case, who's got to be somewhere in Washington, who's fucking freaking out at this ICJ case that South Africa's filed against Israel. I cannot believe, usually, like, these are statements. Let let me just be clear, anyone who's joined us or who, you know, down the line, who hasn't been here since I've been explaining what this is, but uh, let, let me just be clear what this really is here. This is the United States making a filing before the International Court of Justice about how they interpret how the United States interprets the Genocide Convention and what it justifies, how it should act, right? They're saying they've already submitted. They've already told the International Court of Justice, basically deciding what is genocide and what is not is your sole authority. They've already told the International Court of Justice that, hey, you can't use the excuse. No nation can use the excuse of preventing a genocide to invade another country or to act aggressively towards another country and to acquire that country's territory. In fact, the, the, the correct response to preventing or addressing a genocide is for all of the, mem- for the member states to go to you, the United Nations, and ask you what we should do to prevent it. It is your sole authority. The, the United States cannot now argue in good faith that one, hey, motherfucker, UN, like the UN, you don't have no authority over us about genocide. They've already said, <coughs> excuse me, they've already admitted that the UN has that authority. And they also can't say that Israel has the right to prevent its own genocide here, because that's what Israel's been saying this whole time. Hamas, oh, Hamas is, they're trying to genocide us, it's in our charter. The United States has taken this position publicly that preventing genocide is not an excuse for aggression and territorial acquisition. The fact that they use the words territorial acquisition is fucking insane here. You know so the, the, the person in the UN or the Biden Biden's UN person is going nuts looking at videos of uh, Israeli soldiers planting Israel flags in the Gaza Strip. Like, here, I... Like, I thought this case that South Africa, I I know I'm spending a lot of time on an unrelated case, this Ukraine-Russia case, but can you, can I get like, am I conveying how crazy this is to y'all? Am I doing a good enough job of really putting this in, right? Because, because, uh, putting this into perspective, because the thing is, look, there are certain positions now that the uh, the U.S. will not be able to take in preventing any charge of its complicity in genocide. The, it is already admitted to so much. It is already publicly, uh, and it did this in relation to Russia. Um, it's not going to be able to walk this shit back. Okay? 
And I think that's going to embolden the ICJ a little bit in their decisions with in, in regards to Gaza. Now, they're, 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 that's mostly what I wanted to go through for this. I see that I'm at like an hour and 20 minutes almost of, of going over this stuff. But let me bring it back to Israel and Gaza for one moment and just talk about some of the response to the preliminary ruling by the, uh, the ICJ saying that basically uh, South Africa has shown that there is a plausible case of genocide uh, against uh, that their case accusing uh, Israel of genocide is plausible enough that we will go to the merits. We will have a full case. We will hear all the evidence on it. Again, that was a 16-1 decision. Does that mean that the ICJ is going to rule that a genocide actually happened? Not necessarily, no. And, and there are a lot of big, like, big political implications to what that would mean. Um, but what we can see, right, in the immediate aftermath, <laughs> this, is what's, this is what's so crazy, of that ruling, right, is Israel's come out, most, many Israeli officials, officials, uh, officials have come out and said, hey, we're not going to listen to the Hague. We're not going to listen to the ICJ. We don't give a shit. We don't care. But here's what they've been doing now. Now they're attacking the UNRWA, right? And we think for people who, I was a bit confused why Israel was attacking the UNRWA. Uh, for those who don't know, the UNRWA is an arm of the UN uh, that is basically, uh, it's the Relief and Works Agency. And they are an arm of the UN, another organ of the UN, or a sub-organ uh, of the UN, that provides uh, relief, uh, disaster relief, uh, humanitarian relief, aid. But they are an arm of the UN, right? And for people who had, had not made the connection before, remember the ICJ is one of the principal arms of the UN, now, the United States, knowing damn well the positions that it's taken before the UN and before the International Court of Justice regarding genocide, knowing damn well that Israel is being blatant as hell with all of its shit, and knowing damn well that enough, they can't just walk back those statements about the ICJ, the United States needs an out that happened, some new thing that happened in between their filing in 2022 in regards to the Russia and Ukraine genocide allegations and today that should change their opinion on the UN. Basically, the both Israel and the United States need to make a plausible case to the world that between 2022 and today, the UN has somehow been infiltrated and lost its legitimacy. They teach you, they don't teach you in law school, but they, 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 there's a couple of, there's a statement, there are a couple of statements that's like this, right? Um, the first is that, uh, how they tell you how to, how to work a case, how to win a case, right? 
they say, I think the saying goes like this. Uh, if the facts are on your side, pound the facts. Really hit them with the facts. If the law is on your side, pound the law. And if neither are on your side, pound the table. Make noise. Delegitimize the organization. Kangaroo court that shit. The United States of America is trying to kangaroo court the International Court of Justice by promoting and attacking the UNRWA. Now, if you don't know, uh, like I said, the UNRWA is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees. They're showing now, or allegations are coming out now from Israel, oh, all of a sudden, that, oh no, there are terrorists in the UNRWA. In fact, Hamas is the UNRWA. They're literally trying to make the UN into Hamas. It's not a joke. It's 100% serious. That's what they're trying to do. And the United States is now going along with it because they don't have a fucking legal argument here. As I just read to you in their own filings from 2022, the United States has kind of given the whole game away as to saying that the UN and the ICJ are solely in charge of determining when a genocide is occurring and also in preventing and punishing genocide. They could not rely on Israel's arguments that Hamas wants to wipe them out. They could not rely on, uh, well, they can't rely on Israel for anything except embarrassing them over and over again and, and killing innocent people. I mean, I've never seen some shit that was this like blatant by a, by, by what is supposed to be like a, uh, uh, a nation that has its shit together. It's insane. But the United, look, here's why I think it's going to happen long-term. Will the UN, uh, will the ICJ rule that a genocide is committing? If they want to have any sort of legal legitimacy remaining, yes. But, oh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because I don't see the UN surviving a blow like that. I think the, the goal here is going to be for the USA to try to almost form a separate organization from the UN, as crazy as that sounds. And I think I, 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 I think the goal, I think the only plan here is going to be to delegitimize the UN entirely. And as Zach says in the chat, it's not crazy. That's what happened to the League of Nations. That is what happens. Um, the League of Nations being the successor organization or the um, predecessor organization to the United Nations uh, formed uh, in the in the in the wake of or after World War One. Um, but that's where we're heading, people. We're heading because legally, like I said, um, we'll get into the particulars of the South African case on another episode. I've been talking for a long time. I want to start dialoguing with people, but um Legally speaking, the South Africa case is solid, but it's solid not just because of the the facts and the the horrors that Israel's committing out in the open. It's solid because Israel's greatest ally, the United States, has already represented in court that this should be the ICJ's in the ICJ's purview, that this is their wheelhouse 
and that they're the boss. Um, yikes. Yikes, United States. We're about to show our whole, I mean, we've been showing our ass for a while. Thank God. I think it's time to, for people to really, I mean, most people kind of see how much we stink right now, how much our booty stink, but it's, it's time for us to wake up to it. I know everyone here has kind of woken up to it. I do not fuck the United States as it currently is. This is ridiculous. It's, it's embarrassing. It's an embarrassment to be like this. And it's not our fault. It's not. It's this. This is what happens when you have a, a, a when your politicians sell out, when they their only value is, uh, you know, power, when there's no actual, when the only mission is just power for its own sake. I mean, this is, this has been a long time coming. And this international rules-based order is, we're about to try to dismantle our own setup of an international rules-based order. I mean, for God's sakes, the United Nations headquarters is in New York City. And now we're going to try to delegitimize the, the organization slowly but surely. It's the only pathway. What else do they do? Listen, I think that's enough for the lesson for today. Um, but really, I wanted to reveal that case again. This this case against Ukraine and Russia with these cross allegations of genocide, basically. There's a ruling coming out on Friday, and I've yet to really hear anyone talk about this. Look, if you if you know, um, you know, people whose podcasts and stuff that you listen to, um, people who are really interested in this, I, I think I'm going to reach out to people like Ryan Grimm, uh, which I know people have mixed opinions on. I know he's like, oh, he's a little lib or whatever. I don't care. He's a good reporter, and I think he would pick up on this. Th this is something maybe I can just keep following this and just reporting on it. Maybe this will be my beat for a while. Because uh, this is kind of a fascinating element of this case that I don't think people are really thinking about. Uh, to the extent that the United States was going to be, uh, you know, complicit or, or charged with being complicit in the genocide, their own words are going to be used against them heavily. Our own statements to the UN are going to destroy uh, any semblance of, uh, look, it's really going to make the case harder for Israel and for us. And that's important because the ICJ has a lot of ammo to write a very good decision about why they're finding that there's a genocide going on in Gaza. Will they do it? Will they not? It's tough. I mean, if these chicken shit countries like Germany and France and, and the like and Canada keep trying to say that the UN's wrong, that Israel can't be committing a genocide, what we're going to see is a split. You're going to see that split. And who knows? Maybe China will just end up like, I mean, I don't, China's not going to join if we create a new United Nations, the, the new axis of evil, because that's what it will be. It will be an axis of evil. Don't, don't get it twisted. It'll be an axis of exploitation and evil and big brother type shit. It's insane. But um, South Africa won't be there, which is crazy, you know. Basically, I'm saying let's move to Africa. Fuck this, fuck this shit. That's that's enough. I've I've spoken enough. 
that's uh, that's the T. And again, I'll put the uh, the website for the International Court of Justice in the chat. Uh, again, just look at the sidebar when you get here. Look at the sidebar. The first thing, latest news, that the International Court of Justice will deliver on Friday, February 2nd, 2024, its judgment on the preliminary objections raised by the Russian Federation in the case concerning allegations of genocide under the Convention of the Prevention of Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Ukraine versus Russian Federation, with the 32 states intervening. Like, take a dig, dig on that. That's like, I just, I can't believe, I, I just find it wild. It's some wild shit. Anyway, uh, first caller, Brady, welcome back to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. How you doing, man? You there? What's up? You would wait until the exact moment I sat down at my homegirl's house to... <laughs> so I'm going to yeah. get really quick. Yeah, that microchip, um, that, those shrooms you took, I microchipped them. You, and You got me tracked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. It's like the exact moment, too. But... Um, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I think now is the perfect time to walk away from Zientology as a whole, whether you're like Christian, Muslim, um, Jewish, whatever. There's never been a better time in history to walk away from the whole thing. And so I'm going gloves off on the whole thing. I'm telling people that Jesus was a child trafficking groomer who was arrested with a young naked man. And the Hebrew is a counterfeit language. They don't even have like 6,000 words at the time of the interpretation of the Bible, which is like nothing compared to other languages at the time, which barely makes them Semitic at all by definition. And even today, by modern standards, I think the modern Hebrew language has like, I don't know, like 60, 160,000 words, something like that. Whereas like, you know, ancient Greek and other older languages are just much more expansive. So it's like a, it's a made up, it's a made up culture. You know what I mean? It's a made up scam. They, they took all the gods from Greek mythology and they try to consolidate them into one God uh, for the same reason that we try to consolidate um, political parties these days. It's why people are so antithetical to new political parties is because it's much cheaper for people to purchase politicians when they only have to buy two sides of a party or one party. Um, and if they had to purchase the morality of say five or 10 parties uh, to get an issue passed that, is not as cost efficient suddenly they don't have nearly as much influence or sway as they would have with uh, less options so i think it's the yeah. same thing going on there and also like to point out that you if you objectively look at the god yahweh or jehovah or whatever the fuck you want to call him uh he's objectively racist and genocidal so Careful. it's it's time to walk <laughs> i think your girl's telling you to be careful in the back too um <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think anytime someone uses, uh, religion as a justification for genocide, uh, they should probably shut the fuck up. Uh, I don't think there's, and I think any religion that tells you that a genocide is justified, uh, to the extent that there is any kind of hell. I don't see how you wouldn't be burning there forever. I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I, I appreciate that. Sorry that I caught you right when you were, uh, I would offer hanging with your the, girl. The, but, realist, uh, the realist hell there is, is the hell that this cult is creating, uh, for young people and women all over history for the last two. Yeah. Yeah. I can't really argue with that. Uh, 
and anyone who says that they're not creating a hell in Gaza right now uh, is not paying attention. But yeah, any other parting shots? Any other thoughts? Encourage everyone to walk away from Zientology completely. It's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. I agree with that. Zionism is not cool. Uh, and, uh, well, we're kind of seeing where it ends right now. I mean, it's, it's the irony here is that, you know, what was done to the Jewish people in world war two is, uh, you know, no one can kind of understate how dark that was, how, how, uh, unjust, how cruel, inhumane. I mean, everything you can say about it. And now you have people who some who are the descendants of that same horror who are unironically unthoughtfully just killing children, women, innocents, uh, in mass. I, I think that's, I think that is, uh, whatever the opposite of poetic justice is just kind of, that's one of the darkest sort of progressions I think you could take as a victim. It's like being raped and becoming a rapist, you know? It's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know what this does to people. What are you doing? But there they are. Um, there they are. Zach, what's going on, man? It's good to see you, man. How you doing? Bye. it's good to hear your voice. How have you been? It's It's been a ride. Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah, man. I'm working with some, you know, uh, activist orgs in my area to get the word out and hopefully, you know, put our piece into, you know, the history books to try to stop this for whatever that's worth. Um, I just had a couple things. I, I really appreciated your episode. Uh, you broke it down really well. Um, let's see. Defending themselves. Oh yeah. So, uh, some of the rhetoric, uh, that I don't jive with, uh, I don't think you said it directly, uh, but it, it pinged in in the back of my head. Uh, I have a bad memory, so forgive me. Um, people are saying that Israel uh, is defending itself um, against right. Hamas. That's not really true because Israel is an occupying force. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, As the UN has ruled, by the way. The UN, uh, yes. the, the, the ICJ has actually ruled uh, – Two things, crucially. One, uh, that uh, Israel is an occupying force uh, upon the people of Gaza, and that uh, the wall that they had built was actually uh, – what did they say exactly? They said it was a violation of their um, – the the Gazan people's right to sovereignty or, or something yes. along those right? But they, they ruled that the wall was uh, against international law. And then two, that occupied forces do have the right – to uh, resist, including armed yeah. resistance, right? So uh, that's a very good point, Zach. I do not, when I say uh, Israel is saying that they're defending themselves, right? I do not think that's a legitimate defense. Let's be clear. Under international law, I don't think it's a, international, uh, a legitimate defense because they are- Right, just stating them. the, I, uh, yeah. And I right. thought that, I, I just had to put it out there. Thank you for no, clarifying. I, I appreciate that because the clarity is needed. I- I think from a from a legal argument standpoint, they are arguing that they are defending themselves. Now it's wrong, 
right? It's wrong, but that's what their argument is going to be. And I'm saying, even if that is your argument, your biggest ally has already shown, uh, filed uh, documents in the International Court of Justice saying that that should be, that uh, excuse does not excuse you for, uh, from, or saying that you're defending yourself or preventing the genocide or preventing your own genocide does not justify invading another country, taking their shit and taking territory. The United States has already said that. So even if we assume that Israel's defense is correct, which again, it's not, even if we assume they still lose. Basically speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, exactly. So there's no way out. What I'm saying is that they're, they're cornered from a, from a legal defense standpoint. These are all the things they're going to throw out there. This is how they're going to try to justify their genocide because it's a, it's a court case. They're going to try to put up, they're going to try to show that their defense. And if you remember to anyone who watched the hearing, um, when Israel presented their uh, case for against their defense preliminarily against, um, you know, the preliminary finding that they were committing a genocide. Uh, all they said was Hamas, 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 Hamas. <laughs> yes. None of that has any bearing on whether or not you, you are allowed to genocide a people or attack a people or occupy their territory. Well, it and, has no bearing. yeah. And the, the Hamas, I, I will, I will give some rope. Uh, to people who are against Hamas, and I've had I had this conversation last week. In my opinion, they're an imperfect ally, and yeah, the the, the Palestinians in Gaza elected them. They're who we got. I I think there if there are uh, humanitarian what would I um, bad things happening, uh, yeah. then as you know, in international community, we should definitely be pointing a spotlight but i i I am i've been touting my support for the resistance as imperfect uh as it is uh one one more thing um you were saying that the court may not have teeth what are the in your like you know legal framing what are the ramifications of that um we get the perfect ruling we want. Sure, sure. The, well, the USA is going to say "fuck off," and their their buddy Israel is going to do the same thing. That's a great point. Let me look at Article. Was it seven or eight of the Genocide Convention? I think it's Article Eight. Uh, let's look it up. Let's just see uh, to to see because they're they're okay. Here we go. Uh, Article Eight. Any contracting party may call upon the competent organs of the United Nations to take such action under the charter of the United Nations as they consider appropriate for the prevention and suppression of acts of genocide or any other acts enumerated in Article 3. Let me see Article 9, too. Disputes between the contracting parties relating to the interpretation, application, or fulfillment of the present convention, including those relating to the responsibility of a state for genocide or for any of the other acts enumerated in Article 3, shall be submitted to the International Court of Justice at the request of any of the parties to the dispute. So I'm trying to think. So to me, as I understand the, the, the Genocide Convention, when I say the court doesn't have power, the power of a court is always in its ruling, right? The court 
including the International Court of Justice, does not have its own army or actual enforcement mechanism, right? The That is the rhetoric I've been hearing. Yeah, that is, that is an interesting point. Right. Now, I have one thing I, I failed to look into, which I will do for the next time we speak about this, because it seems pretty important, is uh, to look up what powers that the United Nations uh, Charter, the Charter of the United Nations, uh, has. Because here, because what they say in Article 8 is any contracting party may call upon the competent organs of the United Nations to take such action under the Charter of the United Nations as they consider appropriate for the prevention and suppression of the acts of genocide or any of the other enumerated acts. So basically what that means is, well, there are some apparently competent organs of the United Nations. And we talked about other organs of the United Nations, right? There's a general assembly and then there's the security council, I believe. Um, Maybe they have some kind of power. I know the UN has some small army and not enough to, fight any other country's army, but they have some enforcement mechanism there. Um, the Charter of the United Nations is another fa- is a founding document of the United Nations or one of the founding documents of the United Nations. There are probably some powers in there as to what can happen um, in the same way that there are certain powers within our constitution or, or uh, like procedures, at least, that are outlined as to what can be done in certain situations, you know, uh, things like impeachment, uh, things like, uh, you know, nominating a new justice to the Supreme Court, et cetera. Uh, Those are two things I have not really looked over before today. Uh, So I think the next question, and one thing I'll really focus on uh, next time is figuring out what the competent organs of the United Nations are, what kind of enforcement powers it may have, and then check out that charter again, too. Um, Because, again, the court... Uh, the ruling's just going to be the ruling. Now, I, that's not pointless. And if nothing else, this is, you know, this sounds like a Pyrrhic victory, but uh, a ruling that Israel is not just like an illegitimate state, but a state that has committed a genocide will be a stain on them forever. I And, and look, it's not, it's, we could sit around and say, well, who gives a fuck? What, what do words mean? I do think that for more normie, I guess, people, that's not some, that's not a kind of stain you want. It's like someone who, I mean, I don't know, people who go to jail and who go to prison and stuff, who have like a felony on their record, they have a hard time with that felony on their record. Now I don't, I think that's an entirely different issue, but a blemish is a blemish, right? Um, And the United States, if that has that too, we're going to lose a lot of international influence, at least with people we've been trying to kind of maintain uh, order over. Right. Um, It it could even, you know, you know, the alienation that it could bring would be interesting. Sure. In the international community. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, thanks for answering my questions, Bide. Uh Really good show. I loved the deep dive. I'm, I, I am. This is something I am very, you know, 
close to me because I don't like genocide and I want the world to be uh, a nice peaceful place. So my activism has, since October has been the spotlight, you know, Israel, Palestine. So it was cool to hear you break it down. Yeah. And it's, it's cool for you to be out there doing stuff and for, you know, doing what you can people. Um, don't ever let anyone convince you that you're powerless uh, or that nothing you do matters. And there are levels to this shit. Uh, you know, there are people who are actually out in the fields fighting for freedom and fighting the good fight. But uh, even some of this Twitter activism stuff, as I know it's a, the bottom of the totem pole, but don't stop talking about it. Don't let these motherfuckers be comfortable. If they're going to commit a genocide, they're not going to be comfortable. They're not going to get us to at least shut up. That's not going to happen. So I appreciate, for Zach, all of you who are doing stuff. Uh, thank you and keep doing it. And for those of you who aren't, any little thing happens. I mean, shit, here I am. Just what am I doing? I'm Well, I'm reading court cases at the end of the day. But God damn it, I'm reading court cases. You know, like it's something. Maybe this, uh, you know. If, if, if I'm sure South Africa already has this angle, but if they don't, I'm, I got to find a way to contact their legal team <laughs> and send them this shit. But Maria, what's going on? Welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. How are you doing? Talk to you. Thank oh. you. Thank you yeah, for sure. being extensive on this topic. Uh, thank you to Zach. Zach always has really, really solid contributions. Yeah to make and I appreciate Zach and you. I you know, I I just it's it's a daily deep dive for me. Uh the the issue is always on the surface for me. Yeah. Um and I I just wanna ask you, you know, the ICJ issued you know, you Israel, you have to report back to us on your compliance, la la la, within 30 days. What do you think is going to happen with Israel's report back? Are they just going to say, oh, we've complied, but did what they wanted to do anyway? Or... Or, or is it just going to be a giant fuck you uh, to the ICJ? I can honestly see it going either way, Maria. It's really tough. It's really hard to tell. It it depends on... There's a couple of things that I think could happen, too. Uh, we think about the timing of... You know, there have been reports now that Israel is in the midst or in the process of trying to negotiate a 60-day ceasefire. I think that timing is on purpose. I think they want that ceasefire to be uh, occurring while they're issuing during the time that the report is supposed to be issued so that they could say, look at us, look at Look how good we're being. We're being such good boys. We're just, you know, ceasing the fire and, you know, doing all the things we're complying. I think that's, they'll try something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. I, well, Go, go ahead. There, 
There were just some ceasefire talks over the weekend, and Gaza, hands hands down, just said no. Yeah. uh, Because, you know, it it was completely one-sided. Yeah, Um, yeah. I I also think, I I think regardless of how people have seen... um, Hamas up to this point, I think it's very hard to deny that politically they're very savvy. Uh, they've made a couple of moves so far that have uh, shown that they, I think they've been underestimated or they're not just their capabilities, but their, their understanding of um, almost, I don't want to say media, but how to resist uh, has been underestimated. So I, I think their decision to reject the ceasefire, I wouldn't be surprised if I know that some of the reasons why they were rejecting the ceasefire, at least from reporting that I saw, which I can't remember where from, what were um, the, one of the conditions was the um, unconditional release of all hostages, which is really their last uh, leverage card which I think they're keeping at this point hostages to prevent the complete destruction of Gaza as, as terrible as it sounds. It sounds like um, they feel that if they give the hostages, all of them back, most of the hostages now being um, as I understand it, IDF soldiers or uh, non-civilians, although there are still some civilians in the midst. Um, But I, I think they believe that if they give back all the hostages, well, Israel's already gone this far. They're going to basically nuke the place without nuking it. Uh, And there'll be no negotiating card that uh, Hamas still has for that. Um, But it it could also be, maybe they know this, this, um, maybe they think they they want to see what this report is going to say (laughs) uh, that that Israel turns in if there's no ceasefire happening. And they don't want to give Israel a, a PR victory here for as... Because, I mean, the longer this is going on, the worse Israel is looking in every way. I mean, I, I, it's it's from their soldiers' TikToks to their their um, uh, people's statements, their their leader statements to uh, their uh, – just how brazenly they've been about uh, being cruel in public. I, I think it's having a – people are souring on them pretty hard. It feels like, at least. The international community is, but you wouldn't know that if you only pay attention to Western media. Yeah, or if you paid attention to just um, Western leaders. I mean, you know, the the people in power are all kind of uh, coalescing behind... Bought and sold. It's it's crazy. I mean, seeing fucking uh, Trudeau... And uh, not Merkel, but who, uh, the one in Germany. Uh, it's not Merkel anymore. Merkel's gone, right? Merkel's been gone. Um, oh, long gone. Uh, yeah. I forget the current whatever's yeah. name. But yeah. uh, he's on his way out, too, because everybody's protesting uh, the e-commerce boundaries and cross-borders. Uh, the farmers in Germany are throwing 
an unbelievable royal bitch fit. They are in yeah. Poland. They are in the Netherlands. Uh, Europe is up in arms against their governments uh, across the board, especially in terms of agricultural mm -hmm. trade. It's mm -hmm. not it's not going to work out well for that leadership. And it's not going to work out well for the leadership of Israel. Israel, Netanyahu is a goner, no matter what he does. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and I, I, you know, what worries me, though, Maria, is um, I, I think a lot of damage has been done to the psyche of uh, the Israeli populace. I think the, the, some of the polls that have come out of Israel, Netanyahu being gone is great. But what I'm worried about is someone even worse than Netanyahu getting in there. I don't see them going with, um, put it this way, I don't see someone being elected in Israel who is trying to negotiate a solution with Hamas or trying to let the Palestinian people live in peace. I, I, people, I mean, some of the polls that have come out with people basically wanting, believing there are no innocents in Gaza, saying that Israel should be bombing even more or that the bombings are just okay. You know, the fact that you have only like a, like a, what was, what, what was the percentage of people who bought a ceasefire, who wanted a ceasefire in, in Israel? Um, it was, it was in the single, uh, Single digits. I want to say it was like 5%. Let me see if I can find this. Um, but this is what worries me about Israel. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, well, that's 10 hours ago from the, the Palestine Chronicle. Let's see what else I can find here, too, just to yeah. find some things. But. Israeli news does a lot more honest reporting on the situation than U.S. media does. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's, that's scary. It is scary that 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 the Israeli media is at times more honest and less propagandistic in a lot of ways than the uh, our current media. Uh, okay, so this is this is the only one I'm seeing. Let me try to Google this because I want to make sure I get this right. But because yeah. um, this I is mean, important to figure out it is um but ultimately what scares me the most is that governments are not representing the sentiments of the people in their international relations i i don't think many americans have any interest in israel's conflict or occupation in gaza they don't want to be involved, and they definitely don't want people dying. And I, yeah. I, I don't think American populace has any interest in attacking Iran. I, I don't think the general populace has any interest in, you know, funding a corrupt government in Ukraine. I, governments are not representing their people. They just aren't. Uh, yeah, I think I think 
you know, it's, 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 that can only go on for so long. Right. I, I look, as we move into like a technocratic era of autocracy where uh, we believe that like, well, well, let's be frank, you know, people like um, Elon Musk, just a billionaire class in general are finding new ways to um, not rely on our labor and to, to basically become trillionaires and to control everything. Um, We're going to have a harder and harder time fighting against that. But I think the political conditions, you know, in some ways, even Trump's rise and his continued relevance are indicators of a populace that has lost complete faith in its government in a lot, you know, in, in, in politicians as they have existed. Um, you can't go on just constantly lying to your people, gaslighting them and, uh, expecting to maintain power. Something's going to fucking crack in this country. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that the natives are getting restless, but Mm -hmm. where do you see that going? Well, in, in the next year, the next two years, yeah, the next year or two, we're probably fucked. I got to be honest. If it's if 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 it happens within the next year or two years, we're going to fascism. I don't see how we don't. Um, I, I mean, you can argue and make a, a pretty good argument that we're already there, and we've been there for quite some time. I, I'm I'm willing to accept a lot of those arguments, and you know they they have merit. I don't know exactly where I come down on it, but what I could say is uh, what I do think is uh, when economic conditions get to what they are, when the world conditions get to what they are, when resistance is going to happen, when people are fed up and they're willing to basically risk everything. Uh, If you have not set the foundation for for socialism to take over or for an alternative system where people are have a sense of direction, purpose and, and solidarity with one another, an understanding of their relation as far as class, um, and where their true interests lie. If you have not set up that foundation, it is much, much easier and much, much more likely that fascism will reign because fascism gives you, one thing that Trump is really good at is giving uh, voice to the concerns of a, a destitute populace, but giving them the wrong enemies and the wrong things to blame, you know? He's he he's truly a fascist in the most traditional sense, right? He he uh, understands the pain of the people, but then misdirects it. And why does that usually happen over socialism? Well, one, like socialism is very much dependent, as I said, on everyone kind of knowing what the deal is, knowing what the sides are, which means we're fighting an information war constantly. We're fighting a, 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 a education war constantly. And we're doing it with less resources and less access to power and a lot of uh, disadvantages. And, you know, the fact that a basic class consciousness takes a little bit of um, understanding and you have to, you know, like we it takes us a while to get that information out there and then to organize around it. But when you have someone who can just basically give you an easy answer and say, you know, something like, oh, it's the blacks or, oh, it's the Jews. Oh, it's Hamas. They can give you an outlet to fight against while 
maintaining the capitalist structure as it is, which means that at the end of the day, power, the power structure and the people in power will be maintained where they are. And well, what you give them is the illusion and the guise that things have changed when things actually haven't changed. So what does that mean? That means whenever a, a, someone like Trump comes along, whenever it becomes closer and closer to like outright fascism, eventually what you will see are the billionaire class, the corporate class getting behind them. Why? Because one side, so, because they both know shit is going to blow up. Shit is going to change. That the, 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 the power structure as it currently is, um, or that the populace is going to revolt. But one side is promising liberation of all those people who are underneath the thumb of uh, the corporate class and who would rebel against them. And the other side, like Trump, is promising you that you'll still maintain your profits. You'll still maintain your influence. Well, So they get behind him. And now the fascist guy with all the, um, the, 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 the money the uh, a lot of the people behind him um that's what happened with Mussolini right i mean like that was the and Mussolini was a uh, used to be a socialist but then he realized oh it's way easier for me to just get power if i just <clears throat> become a fascist do you consider it possible mm -hmm. because personally i consider trump to be anti-establishment more than I consider him to be a fascist element. I Between Trump and Biden, I think Biden is much more of a fascist element. And I think entirely the appeal of Trump is that he's very anti-establishment. I think that's what he wants you to believe. But let's really look. Let's, let's break down. How is he anti-establishment? He's a billionaire. Everyone he surrounds himself with are billionaires. When workers reach out saying we need help, he opposes the unions. He was against the UAW. If you look at class interests, he will never be on your fucking side. But he's really good at making you think he's anti-establishment because you know what he is? He's anti the media establishment. He's anti um, um, some of yeah. these kind of bureaucratic establishments. But yeah, guess what? Those are not our establishments. <laughs> Our establishment uh, being they labor. are at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, they're they're they are establishments that control us and that 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 have power over us, and he promises to get rid of them, but not for our benefit. No, no, no. It benefits him as well. And here's the thing, like here here's what I want people to understand about Trump. Like I I he's very good at seeming anti establishment, but ask what kind of economic establishment he would have. When has this person ever supported a union? This person doesn't pay his fucking workers who do the actual labor <laughs> hold his fat ass up. Like, yeah, I, I know. I, I saw that one lawsuit that he had underpaid his workers. All of them. And I was really surprised that he paid them at all. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, Donald Trump is an unbelievable piece of shit. But on several levels, I, especially with corporate-owned news media, I mm. think but, but I, I think I, I it's a necessary that. evil on some levels. See, I, 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 I think that is the 
that is the reason why a lot of the fascism stuff will succeed is because he, like I said, Trump is the, I'll say Trump is anti-establishment sounding, but what Trump wants to do is not get rid of the establishments that oppress us because they oppress us. He wants to get rid of the establishments that oppress us because they also prevent him from taking complete control. Trump I'm not disagreeing to, with you. You know, but I think it's it's very important for to say because I don't want to be on like the I'm uh, just so we're clear here too. I'm not voting for fucking Biden. There's no fucking way I'm voting for Biden. So for anyone who's like, "Oh, you're a liberal. You're doing this." First of all, call me whatever you want. I'm I'm most of the time I'm right. I feel like with 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 stuff or I'm trying to be. Um and I hear you, but what one thing that I hear about with or one thing that really scares me about Trump is I'm not voting for him either just because he would destroy the uh, media establishment because here he's going to uh, he's someone who would set up a uh, well you saw it with like the the what was it the the 1776 project that he put on uh, which was one of the things that uh, gets forgotten about it was one of his responses to the 1619 project which for those of you who remember what life used to be like when we were still fighting that culture war was a, you know, like a report, basically 1619 was the, the year that slavery started in America. And it was a, some like woke professor put together like a interpretation of American history from the side of like the slaves or whatever. Right. Um, right. Uh, Trump put out a alternative sort of history basically saying, oh, we're not going to have this woke history. And there were problems with the 1619 Project, for sure. It wasn't there a lot of interpretations that, like, you don't really, it didn't make sense to look through as, like, the lens of slavery or whatever. But he puts forth a, a 1776 Project, which is his own alternative history, which is how the founders never did anything wrong, how America's always been just and true and all this. And this is what we have to understand, is that, like, we Trump, in some senses, w- has been right about like the fake news, calling out the news media. He's woken people up to it. People love him because of all the candidates. You know, no one else was really calling out these things that we knew were oppressive and evil and 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 um, propaganda machines, like bought, like uh, owned, corporate owned, and 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 run and all this stuff, right? But while we both want to dismantle those machines while we only one of us wants truth right (laughs) only one of us wants to dismantle those machines so that we have access to truth the other wants to dismantle the machines to have control that's it and and that is the danger of trump and that is the danger of the appeal of trump is is particularly that now you know he's incompetent in a lot of ways i don't know if he's even conscious of everything that he's doing but that is when we look at Mussolini and we look at all these other people, that's what they did. And that's why I say, you know, fascism is so much easier to uh, to, it, to become your new replacement system than it is socialism, which is which is why we really have to keep things um, on understanding when we say who we have a material interest in or who's a, like fighting in our material interests. Let's talk material interests. Let's talk about. Yeah. 
who's putting who's going to help us have food on our tables? Like truly, right. who's going to help us have ownerships well, and ownership stakes in our workplaces? Control there were two. There were two really interesting statistics that came out for me, reported by Redacted, Clayton, Natalie Morris. One of them was that Congress outperformed the S&P 500 in 2003 by a long shot. Yep, multiple times. And... Currently, southern border influx of population is outpacing new births in the United States. So, uh, these these are two things that I think are of very serious significance. Yeah. Um, and underreported and yeah. not yeah. talked about. And I think I think statistics like that are somewhat more relevant to impacting the day-to-day life of American citizens than it is um, how much Donald Trump is or is not fascist or whatever. And my my whole thing is when I vote, I'm going to write in no confidence because I have no confidence in any of these motherfuckers. Yeah. They're all liars. You know, I'm working the campaign. I'm the campaign media manager for um, the candidate for president for the Socialist Party USA. And maybe I'll have him and the, the vice presidential candidate come on just to to talk about electoral politics, what, what we need to envision from them, because I, I do think, um, you know, no confidence is a good vote right now. I think we basically need to leverage voting power to start displaying how dissatisfied we are with the candidates, but also leverage voting dollars to uh, slide into uh, unions and other organizations that help the working class, like There was a lot of talk after Bernie uh, suspended his campaign the second time, the second run, about how he just let all the campaign infrastructure die. Everyone just, you know, tore everything down, even though he had all the organizing committees that were out there and people were ready to fight. He sold Um, out and let all of his supporters down. Yeah. He can't trust it again. Yeah. You know, I don't know why he did that, but um, listen, I don't think. I think I'll give credit where it's due. I don't think I'd be nearly as politically uh, active as I am without that 2016 campaign and just hearing someone actually talk about issues, like offer a perspective outside of this fucking same dichotomy over and over again, this corporate duopoly. That being said, you know, we can learn some lessons from that. I, you know, my, what I've been advocating for, along with, um, you know, open primaries and doing all this stuff uh, to, to allow third parties to run, I've been advocating for, you create the infrastructure for a candidate. It doesn't matter if the candidate wins or loses, whatever money and resources that you collect and, and are able to raise from that, you redistribute 
into uh, uh, empowering workers. That's it. You you just you you keep using campaigns to advertise a different way. You run them like you're going to win, and whatever you know, twenty seven dollars people have donated, they can know that at the end of the day, even if you don't win, it goes back to the working class. It goes back to empower them. It gets them active. That's that's what needs to start happening, and I think it's possible. Um, there just needs to be a lot more unity and a lot more coordination between all of us, frankly, on, on how we do that. And then, you know, on your other point too, um, another person I should have on is my friend, Bobby, who, um, him and I have written a bill. It's been like a year since I probably last talked about this because we're still, um, we're in the advertising phase. Now we're in the actual like grassroots getting people to support it. But we wrote a bill which basically sets uh, a maximum limit on the uh, the extent that a uh, public official, an elected member of Congress, if you will, can increase their net worth year over year. A hard cap. Anything else that any other money that they would make um, gets donated to uh, like a uh, a national fund, right? So we're trying to circumvent all of the fucking little bullshits that they do, right? Beating the market year over year. If you want to play in the market, if you want to make money on stocks and insider trading, that's fine. But all of it's going to be taxed. After a certain point, every single fucking dollar of that is going back. And that's going to apply while you're in Congress. And it's going to apply for five years after. So any of that lobbying shit, I think it's five or 10 years. I got to look. But any of that lobbying shit you'll be doing too, fuck you. And it applies to your whole household. So... If your spouse has a lobbying job like Dick Durbin's wife, nope, see ya. You're not making money off this shit. And that we need to kill whatever incentives, financial incentives that people would have to to like enrich themselves in office. Because it's something like, what is it, like over 50% for sure. But I think it's like 80% of senators are millionaires. Like when's the last time, how many broke, how many people in our, in your class in particular? Because even me. Like I'm jobless right now, but like I'm, I'm doing fine. I own a house. Okay. Like I'm okay. I was a lawyer for fucking law firms for a while. So I still have a little bit stashed away. I paid off all my loans. I'm fine, but I'm not rich and I'm not in that class. But think about like people who are broke or have an experience of being broke, which I've had plenty of in my life. But just think about how many of us have had that. How many people who have been broke are in Congress? Well, I've I've dedicated my entire life of service, my entire employment in nonprofits, working to improve the quality of life for people in my community. And that's all I know how to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm just hardwired. A fucking. I see it every day. Yeah. I I see the struggle every single day. Yeah. But you know what, Bide? Um, I'm right there with you. I appreciate the conversation, but I've taken up too much of your time, and I think I need to let other callers get a chance to com- converse with you. Yeah, sure. I, I enjoyed every moment of the time that you took up. So you took up nothing. No. You've, you've I, I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah. 
I really yeah. do. I appreciate you. I appreciate it. It's, it's good to be back on Colin too. And just hear people who like, man, I'm, I'm really going to miss if, and when this space goes away. Cause uh, y'all some real ones and uh, you know, I better see you in real life down the line doing this, all this shit that we're talking about. All, every single one of you, every one of you, um, that's what's got to happen. Um, anyway, here we go. Let me get here. Oh, I got some more excited. Oh, I actually have citations for what I ask for them. Let me look. Okay. Joshua Nunn. I know that name. I know that name. Let me see. Let me see the work cited. I'm, I'm going to copy this down. Anyway, Sonic Blue, Sonic 57 Blue. Welcome to the Fred Hampton in the Suites. Uh, go ahead and unmute yourself. I, I don't know if you've uh, stopped by before. How are you? I feel like he's going to unmute and be like, rolling around at the speed of sound. Got places to go. Gotta find on my rainbow. Is this like a Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog blue? Just keep on moving ahead. Does no one know Sonic Adventure 2 fans in the audience? No city escape people. You know what? Let me, I'm going to give him just a little bit to come here real quick. I'm just going to play, um, play some waiting music while we, uh, wait for just a second. Cause then I'll, I'm going to go to Lance. Um, but, uh, just for the uncultured among you, for the non, uh, for the non cultured. Oh, yeah. oh, Sonic, are you here? Hold on. I have some, I have some introduction music for you real quick. Here we go. Gotta go fast. No. The speed of sound. Got places to go. Gotta find on my rainbow. Yeah, this is that real shit. Yeah, when I'm not being a revolutionary, I'm being a sonic boy. <laughs> Just keep on moving. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. But Sonic, what, what's what's happening, Sonic Fifty Seven? How are you doing? I'm doing good. 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 What uh, what brings you to the the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites? Do you want do you want more of your intro music? Here we go. <laughs> Sing the chorus with me. I know you know it. Follow me. Set me free. Just you and me will escape from the city. I'll make it through. Follow, follow me. Set me free. Just you and me will escape from the city. I'll make it through from me to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Ah, childhood. Uh,. Did did you have anything you want to talk about, Sonic? Or are you just you just chilling for today? Oh, I can't hear you. Can't hear you. Could you try again? Let me turn on my speakers. Can anyone else hear him? I can't I still can't hear him. Sonic? I'm still not hearing you, buddy. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, here, here's what I can do, Sonic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I know you like to go fast, but I gotta put you last. And I'm gonna bring Lance on real quick. And then if you, uh, 
got something you want to say or you want to put it in the chat or something like that, go go for it. But um, in the meantime, uh, maybe I can learn some newer Sonic music. I'm I'm sure that still has to be a that's got to be like a that's a big time like oh he's just chilling. Okay, that's what's up. That's what's up, Sonic Blue Dragon Gaming. Hell yeah, uh, keep gaming, dog. Uh, well then I'll bring uh, I'll bring Lance in here, and then Sonic, if you feel like talking, coming back in, then uh, feel free to call in. But thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for showing up. Thanks for chilling. Uh, Lance, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. Hello, Joe. What do you know? Just got back from Kokomo. <laughs> Hell yeah! Where I got plenty of hoes. No, I'm I'm kidding. <laughs> Looks like Michigan, ain't it? Um, uh, Michigan, you said. Is that where Kokomo is? I don't know. I thought it was a. I thought it was like a island. I only know Kokomo from that. Uh, the Muppets used to do a cover of uh, "Down in Kokomo." Bermuda, <laughs> Bahama, come on, pretty mama, to the local Montego, baby, where don't we go? What's that? Do you know that song? According to Indiana. Latitude and Longitude Finder, Kokomo. Oh, it's Indiana. Okay. Um, yeah, there's that Kokomo, Indiana. Yep. I knew there was. Anywho, uh, I wanted to actually, uh, I was going to say, gee, let me cut to the chase and talk some business with you. But that was about DSA. But oh. let me cut to the other chase, an even more important cut, you know, if I can talk some business. If I, if I, it's like when you, uh, want to ask a girl out. I'll give her my number. Then I know she's interested. I don't just say, give me your number. So if I give you my number, I want a price per hour. You are you don't need the money. That doesn't mean you can do pro bono, but it means you've got time. In other words, if you were just getting your regular rate, you were a busy lawyer, it would be a, gee, I don't know, I'm just too busy or whatever rate. But now, I can I, let me tell you in about, I don't know, two sentences what the uh, concept is, my 501c3 that has been accepted. She said it was a, and you know, not to blow my own horn, but you know, why not? I mean, it's important. It's, she said it's the best business plan she's ever seen. It was a proposal, and she said, "Send me a business plan." Uh oh, that's different than a proposal. It's a little more vague. It's a little more aspirational. It can have detail of proposal, but a business plan has to be in the language of the uh, potential grant givers, uh, the potential, um, you know. Philanthropist. Now, the two people that she said you have to fill in, because I did, I left blank. I said, board of directors was one, which I'd love to have you on that. But she gave, she put me in the direction of two entities, which there's a bunch, and I'd heard of both. <laughs> one was uh, like the Gifford Foundation. They're like a local Rockefeller Ford Foundation or whatever. Good guys, philanthropists, whatever. And she said, put, put me in touch with a particular branch of them, you know, a particular, uh, you know, subgroup that within the Gifford. And the other one she said was SU Law. Because it's just what, you know, young, especially younger uh, entry uh, law students will help you with this stuff. They look for things to work on, and it's the 501c3. Without now, I could give you the two-second pitch of what it is. And if you're interested, I don't know. I can talk to you more about it, okay? If, if you're trying to – yeah, if you're wanting to pitch me on, like, a like a 501c3 and help with that, uh, yeah, shoot me – maybe we can jump on a room or something for a bit after this, but uh, – we can yeah, do that. Well, all right, because I, cool. if you want two sentences, you might say, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, now, it's kind, of, 
Well, it's been a, well. If I could just tell you in a par- in a short paragraph. So yeah, go for it. Then, yeah. The the, uh, the people that I pitched it to originally is a group called SCORE. They used to call it Service Corps of Retired Executives. Now they just use SCORE. Like you don't say Automobile Club of America. They say AAA. You know, they just use their their acronym. But they're freaking amazing. It's like having an a, a high paid consultant specialized to if you want to do a for profit. IT business to help you with a tech person who knows business. In my case, it's a 501c3 for a do-gooder cause. And here it is. A cafe bookstore boutique that will be run, operated primarily by, in this order really, ex-prisoners, unsheltered people, and disabled folks. Okay. Um... Specifically. And others too, but that will be the primary focus. Okay. And she's got people that I missed a gram, but that's when I got my cancer diagnosis earlier, pre-diagnosis, but not, but not. But I'm going to have some normalcy for a while, then surgery and then quick recovery. And then whatever happens beyond that is you know, till the day I die. So I'm in the final phase, but I don't have to go into all that. But the point is, if I don't know, are you comfortable with that concept? Cause some people, oh, what? prisoners, ex, this is ex-prisoners. I'm telling you, they're going to be the kickest ass workers you've ever seen. No, ex-prisoners, I think, are typically really great workers. Um, okay, great. So you're interested, possibly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, the, the concept of um, – so what, they would be running, like, a um, – can you explain it one more time, just real quick? To, well, to- cafe, yeah. bookstore, boutique, very simple, right? Yeah. And you know what it'll be? It'll be, a, it'll, be a, it'll be back to the future. It'll be completely wired for every, you know, internet, Wi-Fi, blah, 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 hotspot, all that. But it'll have newspapers. It's going to have print. I have a, but that's going into. A, I don't want to get into the weeds on the detail. So yeah, cafe, yeah. yeah, cafe, bookstore, boutique, classic. Yeah. You know, modern day Starbucks. You know, and it will. Ha- and you know what? Some of these places are really bright. Again, I'll go into the wee tiny bit. Really bright, really dark. Two separate rooms. You want to hang out and to overstuff couches, or you want to sit on stools in a bright lit. Ah, whatever you want. I have a couple of ambient rooms. Blah, blah, blah. I'll have a football room for Sundays and a chill out Grateful Dead room for the people that hate sports. I don't care. But the point is, cafe, bookstore, boutique that will be run by again ex prisoners, uh, home uh, ex, uh, and uh, you know uh, unsheltered people and uh, the disabled. Yeah, I don't think that's bad. I think that's looking for stuff for them to do, you know. Yeah. To be, yeah. When I gave when I gave Faye Williams is the name of the person that called me back about it because you send it out and they, oh here's your mentor. She's my mentor. She's my guardian angel, Faye Williams. Uh, I don't know how old she, but a black woman. And she uh, said a noble idea, and that's what she said. Send me a business plan. I'm like, ooh boy, that's different. Now she, I knew what she meant. I was going to go to philanthropist. I had to, so I googled it same way I did with a resume. There's the chronological or the skills one. I've had too many gaps. I do the skill one, whatever. And I Googled the one and I picked the template that I thought would work. And she said it's the best business plan she ever had. Not to blow, again, not to blow my own horn, but it works. And it's, yeah. So anyway, not to take up your whole show with that. I will text you where, uh, I guess, well, I have to text you here. So check your DM after the show, uh, you know, in call in and I'll give you my digits, I guess, right? Yeah, sure. I'm going to call me and then we can trade numbers and go from there. Okay, yeah, shoot me, shoot me a call. Maybe we can, uh, let's talk, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 thanks. But again, not to go into all that, but can I, I don't know if there's a topic that we're, that I should be on and then I'll get out of the queue here because you got other callers, I guess. Well, maybe you don't, yeah. but who cares? There's things you want to say. So, but is there a specific topic you want to stick on or should I just bring something in? Well, the basic 
premise of this episode was really um, explaining kind of the ICJ, complaining oh, the Trump. what it does. Um, oh, and the Trump to, thing. A, a what? Oh, the Trump thing about Trump and the oh. danger of Trump. Oh, no, 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 not, not Trump. No, 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 no. That, that no, was, you were talking about that, but that was an offshoot topic. Okay, yeah, ICJ. Total, total offshoot. Yeah, the main thing was the ICJ. Uh, explaining what's going on in The Hague and just kind of the structure of it. And then talking about uh, the generally the South, South Africa's case against uh, Israel, uh, alleging that they're committing a genocide, uh, not going too much into the details of that specific case, but going into some other case filings that I saw. Uh, somebody else is doing them, Indonesia or somebody. Well, that, that's true, too. I haven't looked in that. I, I need to look at that. I, is it Indonesia? I, well, the one I was saying was Ukraine and Russia, believe it or not. Oh, I see. But there's another country besides South Africa that says, we're going to do another one to the ICJ and submit our thing. Did you hear that? Well, it was before that. It was before. So it was actually um, the one I was talking about was from 2022. Well, there's two cases, Ukraine versus Russia. First was in 2017. Ukraine was basically accusing Russia of uh, basically like funding terrorism and the likes. And then a war broke out and a decision was uh, – just decided today, but I haven't been able to be gone, go through the entirety of that decision. It's like 117 pages. There's a lot to right, go through. Right. But they do, I did look in the decision and they do mention some things about genocide. So um, even though genocide's not on the table in that case, you can see that the court is starting to uh, talk about the standard of proof and everything for genocide and the likes. So they're, they're kind of ramping up their jurisprudence around that issue in preparation of whatever rulings they end up uh, giving for the South Africa case and also a separate Ukraine versus Russia case, which happened, was filed in 2022, which is super interesting because Russia, basically the Ukraine took Russia to uh, file a case against Russia in the ICJ saying that uh, Russia was falsely uh, justifying its invasion by falsely claiming that uh Ukraine had committed genocide against the Luhansk, Luhansk and the uh, Don't Esk, uh, what is it? Uh, Don't Esk, uh, I, I don't know how to say it. It's embarrassing, but the Don't Esk, Don't, it's like D O N T S K people, um, those regions. And what happened in that case, which I was kind of uh, talking about, is that. Um, Ukraine says, well, no, uh, Russia can't use an alleged genocide to justify their invasion. And also, if anyone's committed a genocide here, it's Russia because they're, they have the actus reus. They're, they have the actions of killing numbers of Ukrainian men to um, uh, uh, they're killing Ukrainian men, as is demonstrated by this war uh, in huge numbers. And well, really, but, but why can't Ukraine counter countercharge them? They are. They are countercharging them. So, uh, I mean, Russia, I mean, Russia, why can't Russia countercharge the same charge to what Russia's doing? Well, they, are. they are. They are. I mean, why? They should be allowed to. They are. They're allowed to. And there's actually a ruling um, coming out. Well, I'll, I'll bet you money. I bet you a dollar to a donut. They're both guilty. Well, probably, honestly, in, in some ways. I mean, like, I wouldn't be surprised by that. But uh, what's fascinating, what, what I found particularly fascinating about this case is that there were 32 other nations that intervened uh, or they filed uh, motions to intervene basically. So they want to be parties to the case and they want to be involved in the judgment. And one of those or well, three of those nations were the UK, Germany, 
and then also uh, the United States of America. Of course. There's a exactly, of course. And what is fascinating and what I had not really heard being talked about before is that the United States intervention motion in this Ukraine versus Russia case takes some positions that make it very difficult for them to argue that they themselves are not complicit in the genocide going on in Israel. Right, right, right. They've locked themselves into multiple positions now in the International Court of Justice that are going to make this case uh, that should make them very concerned about any kind of the ICJ can put Israel. Well, b- both Israel and the United okay, States. Okay, no, but, but you're jumping. Okay, so I, right now, right now, that last sentence was about Israel. No, no, no. no. Well, the last sentence, the the it's about Israel as far as the um, the charges against Israel. But you're saying Israel, the, Ukraine, and Russia might all three be guilty. I'm, I'm trying to get you here. What I'm saying is this: is that uh, I anticipate that South Africa or someone is going to charge the United States with complicity in genocide, which is one of the things that you're not allowed to do under the Genocide Convention, in addition to the charge they've already put against Israel. I think they're already implied to be a, a kind of a unindicted co-conspirator in our right. lingo. Correct, correct. And and I, I, I would agree with that. But the thing that fascinates me is that the United States has taken several positions in the International Court of Justice, which uh, make are going to make it very hard for them to defend themselves against any charges of complicity and genocide. And those positions yeah. are basically, um, they've said that, oh, go ahead, go ahead. If you listen to Whitney Webb and several others, our intelligence, in other words, our intelligence is really, really close with MI6 or MI5, whatever it's called in Great Britain. Yeah. We give them a lot. We give the five eyes a lot, even New Zealand and Canada. Okay. It's different with Israel. They're completely linked. They get all of our top, extra, extra top secrets. That's why no matter what, we're going to back Israel no matter what, no matter what. It's everything exactly. else is for God. It's exactly. not going to change. We're going to do exactly for Israel what we would do with the, our own CIA, with our own Pentagon military. They're, they're, they're linked in a way that is unlike any, like MI6, MI5, whatever we have with allies around the world, it's not like Israel. They get the tip top, top, top secrets that even Great Britain doesn't get. They're yeah. one and the same. Our intelligence yeah. community, and our military industrial complex is completely tied to Israel in ways that are not just about the revolving door and money. It's about ideology. It's about, it's about a, it's about a, it's about the, the Zionists. It's about the, the Christians and the Jews. And the, between the Christians that hate the Jews, but they love the fact that there's going to be an, a nuclear war in their lifetime. And these are sick, motherfucking, Christo-fascist people on both sides. These people are dangerous, and they will definitely get us into a wider war. And that, and so, man, we better be, keep our eyes on these people because it can get dangerous. And we could force Putin into a limited, quote-unquote, nuclear war because Putin knows that speaking, going, jumping back and forth, because he knows he can't get masses of ground forces. He ain't speaking of Mussolini like you were before, or Hitler, or Idi Amin. He don't have that kind of sway. He, you know, they can kill journalists, and he could try to put his foot down. But there's too many people that remember that are still alive, not many, World War II vets and their kids and grandkids like our country, that remember World War II, but they lost 30 million souls 
20 million soldiers and 10 million that were starved in sieges. They ain't going into any big massive ground war anywhere unless Russia's invaded. So Russia's not going to stomp around and rekindle and regroup their whole empire and go, oh, they're going to be a domino effect. Yeah, we've been doing domino effects in Vietnam and it's been a farce and it's just fuck Russia. They're not going anywhere. Neither is China. China and us are joined at the hip economically as tight as we are with military, with our intelligence, with, with Israel. So all this stuff is just more stomping our feet around the world and keeping us in fear of every country and fear of each other and all this bullshit. But, you know, yeah, so I'll stop there. But I'd love to go back, talk to you about the Trump thing that you were talking about before. Yeah, sure. I think I think, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe next time it's just because I'm getting up to three hours now. Um, maybe next episode I'll go back to like the, the Trump stuff. I, because the, uh, you know, the, the, the thing I just find, uh, fascinating about this, uh, ICJ case is that, uh, you know, the USA has now conferred or, or, or uh, they've conceded that, uh, the ICJ has jurisdiction and sole jurisdiction concerning disputes between contracting parties relating to the interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the Convention Against Genocide, including those relating to the state of, of the responsibility of a state for genocide. So they're saying basically, hey, court, we believe that you are the sole party or the sole organization that can decide whether a state commits genocide or not or has committed genocide or not. They also say, um, well, I'll read you this just to get your opinion on this. But one of the okay. things that, uh, again, of this Ukraine versus Russia case, one of the things that Ukraine is saying is that, look, uh, we don't, Russia can't use the pretext of genocide to invade us. So they can't say that we were committing a genocide, so therefore that we had to invade. And the United States, again, that intervened in this case, said, uh, quote, no provision of the Genocide Convention properly interpreted in good faith, explicitly or implicitly, authorizes a contracting party, that's a party who's accepted the Genocide Convention, acting on the pretext of prevention or punishing genocide to commit aggression, including territorial acquisition resulting from aggression. So this is a, a position that the United States has taken in regards to um, uh, the genocide or the alleged Russia and Ukraine. And I think it's very interesting that Israel's main defense so far in this International Court of uh, Justice case is that Hamas is an organization that wants to eliminate the Jews. They want to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Well, the United States has already taken the position that acting on the pretext, being aggressive and seizing territory uh, on the pretext of presenting genocide or punishing genocide is not authorized either explicitly or implicitly by the Genocide Convention. So the United States itself is basically saying, look here, uh, we, we or basically took the position that even if someone wanted to commit genocide against you or against a nation, that does not require, or that does not um, authorize you seizing their territory or uh, engaging in war with them. So it basically undermines Israel's defense. Now, at the time that they filed this, they didn't know Israel was going to go all genocide on the Palestinian people. But now that they're there, uh, they're in a very sticky position because uh, there's no way that the United States can now argue 
my bad. Oops, we made a mistake. You know, they're kind of screwed there. I mean, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think America and uh, Israel are going to be uh, neutral pariahs. It's like 103, yeah. to, it's like 193 to like seven. I don't even know what the other four would be. Yeah. I mean, it's just so obvious that we're like the only country when they do these general assembly votes, whether they're binding or not, when it's the whole assembly. And it's like 198 to two and it's us and Israel or something. It's like, come on, man. And Israel's going to not have a very fun time economically. They're, 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 it's, it's not going to be, you know, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I listen to the people that are a lot smarter than me about this stuff. Jeffrey Sachs, you know, and I don't always have to agree about everything the man said, but he talks and he knows these people. He talks to all the different circles from the NGOs, from the WHO people to the WF people to the heads of state. And so he gets at least, you know, because he's accepted. He's establishment enough with it, but being honest enough to the public. So I, you know, I trust his statements you know even if i don't have to agree with every analysis he says but he knows the goods and he's like what are these people doing they're insane they're, they're just bringing on world war three and it's sick and it's sad and it isn't just revolving door you know uh, money grubbers at least those you could you could replace them with well-meaning people it's true yeah. believers it's true yeah. believers that believe like the mouse that roared that any little two-bit country three-quarters of the way around the world that couldn't even hit us with a pea shooter, let alone a nuke. And we uh, we get frant they get frantic that that it's like they're, uh, they're we're going to be it's an existential threat to our uh, existence. Yeah. It's, it's crazy the that that they you know the way Lindsey Graham shudders and shakes. Jesus about like Iran and we have to kill them. We have to kill them all. Like dude, pl- like someone give that motherfucker some Vicodin. Like right now, someone. Get him some. Well, uh, you know, you got to admit, though, because look at how we subdued Vietnam and look at how we subdued Afghanistan and look at how we subdued Iraq and look at how we subdued Iran in 53. So we do have a great success. And look at how we look at how we subdued Fidel Castro and didn't let him run his country for 50 years. We got rid of him. And look at how we subdued all these countries. So we've had this string of successes that I guess Lindsey Graham, he has a right to point to. What the fuck kind of a maniac could say we failed at every single war since World War II, not once success but let's keep doing it again in more countries let's double down it's like the people that say well i know there's inequality because of capitalism what we need is more free market capitalism more privatization of everything do more of the shit do more of the shit that destroyed us and as long as we made it pure if we had pure free market if we had pure military hegemony yeah get the fuck out you're not it's unis it's not unipolar anymore Lindsay. it's over yeah no no you're right Right. Iran right. has a real Iran ain't Iraq and uh, 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 Afghanistan, a third world and a second and a half world country at best with Iraq. Iran's got like the sixth largest army after like China, Russia, us and a couple others in the fucking world. We're not we're not going to war with Iran. And there's people in the bowels of the Pentagon that are saying, no, Mr. President, you're not. Oh, by the way. Oh, now, wait, could I flip to Trump for a couple seconds? Well, actually, I got to go in like 10 minutes and I want to get Amanda in. That's here. what I mean, because I know it's getting towards the end. And so I just want to throw that in if I could. I mean, can you get it in 10 seconds exactly? How about 30? All right, we'll negotiate. No, but Trump, okay, he is truly the first president. He says 71 years. I think it's 77 years. Like, you got to go back before FDR that didn't have a war. Now, whether you justify World War II, but the ones after. He's the only president in 77 years that didn't start a new war. That is enough for him to not 
be, to be persona non grata by every power in the military industrial complex. That's, I, and Jeffrey Sachs recently had an art, uh, discussion about how that's what killed Kennedy because he didn't want to expand in Vietnam and, and then LBJ did. I don't know about that. That's where I, I don't know. I think the mafia was involved. I don't want to go off on tangent, but Trump didn't start any wars. And by the way, we had four years of Trump, uh, 10 more seconds, I promise, four, four years of Trump. And you know what? He was the most scrutinized president. We couldn't criticize the black guy. We, it was 9-11, 9-11 for six years of, of Bush until we got caught on to him. And it was, and so, but so Trump was the most scrutinized president since freaking forever. And he's going to be more scrutinized. And by the way, like I put in the chat, he's not going to be any more competent. Whatever chaotic, all yeah. over the place, wacky, chaotic agenda that he tried to put together, he's still going to surround himself with idiots and psychophants. He's not going to be any more competent. He's not. He's, so the smart Trump, like a DeSantis, could have been dangerous. He's going to be just as dumb. He's going to be the orange blob. He's going to be just as incompetent and ham-fisted and over the top and going too far. Trump ain't going anywhere. They're going to neutralize that. Like Schumer said, they got six ways from Sunday to just not yeah. follow his order. So I'm not yeah. just, I'm not going to get into Trump derangement system for another four years. By, he ain't going to do dog I, shit. Well, you don't got to. You don't got to. But I appreciate you calling, man. I appreciate you calling. And uh, we'll uh, hit me up in the messages. All right? Yeah, but thanks, uh, thanks for the chat. Talk to you. Yeah. Talk to you later. Uh, Amanda. Hey, what's up? Ooh, it's AI or new art, Amanda. Uh, welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. How you doing? Hey, bye. I mean, Joe. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah, it's Joe. Yeah, yeah, it's Joe. My bye's not my name. Joe. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. No, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so on the ICJ, and um, I, I didn't know if you knew about the case that they that was filed in November in federal court in San Francisco. No, what case is this? So this, so so a ruling came out on January twenty sixth, but it's um, it's defense for is for children international Palestine v v Biden, and okay, let me see. And the ruling came out on the twenty sixth. So this is a different court then, right? This isn't in the, the Hague? No, this is in, in U.S. federal court. Oh, wow. It, it's, okay. a case, it's a case that um, it's a case that was filed with the Center for Ooh. Constitutional Rights. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing it now. You're so, seeing it? Yeah, okay. defense. So, it, so it was just dismissed today. It was just okay. dismissed um, on jurisdictional grounds. Uh, Jurisdiction, but, yeah, that makes sense. But the but the court did say that the exact quote is pretty damning. But you know, it said um, the both the uncontroverted testimony of the plaintiffs and the expert opinion proffered at the hearing on these motions, as well as statements made by various officers of the Israeli government indicate that the ongoing military siege in Gaza is indicated to eradicate a whole people and therefore plausibly falls within the intentional prohibition against genocide. Okay. I got the motion right here, actually. There you now go. Um, do you know where that quote is from? Let me see. Filed the suit in their motion preliminary. Yeah. That's in, the, it, it says delivering a historic rebuke of Israel. I'm looking at the, um, yeah. 
CCR Justice, the CCRjustice.org website. The, this is the press release put out by the Center for Constitutional Justice. Rights. Oh, yes. Yeah, similarly, so they, they, they quote the ICJ's finding, right. uh, which found that acts and omissions complained of appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the Genocide Convention. Uh, they go more into the ICJ's uh, uh, finding that the military operation being conducted by Israel following the attack on 7 October 2023 has resulted in a large number of deaths and injuries, as well as massive destruction of homes, forcible displacement, and the vast majority of the population and extensive damage to civilian infrastructure. While figures relating to the Gaza Strip cannot be independently verified, recent information indicates that 25,700 Palestinians have been killed, over 63,000 injuries have been reported, over 360,000 housing units have been destroyed or partially damaged, and approximately 1.7 million persons have been internally displaced. Um, And then it goes on to say uh, some of the other rulings of the ICJ, And they say, um, similarly, the undisputed evidence. So there was evidence submitted before this court that was ruling on this. Um, So the San Francisco, this would be the United States District Court of the Northern District of California, which I guess is a federal court, circuit court sitting in in, in San Francisco. Yep. Um, So it says, similarly, the undisputed evidence before this court comports with the finding of the ICJ and indicates that the current treatment of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip by the Israeli military may plausibly constitute a genocide in violation of international law. Both the uncontroverted testimony of the plaintiffs and the expert opinion proffered at the hearing on these motions, as well as statements made by various officers of the Israeli government, indicate that the ongoing military siege in Gaza is intended to eradicate a whole people and therefore plausibly falls within the international prohibition against genocide. Now, like you said, this is... This is... uh, uh, just dicta. This is not a ruling. It has no force of law effect. But that is the fact that they're fine that in a motion to dismiss, which uh, for people who don't know, a motion to dismiss is a pretty routine motion that you would do in a lot of cases that basically say that um, before the case even gets started, before you even go into the evidence and everything. You look at the allegations that are in the complaint and you say, judge, even if all these allegations were true, uh, there's not a legal standing for this case either. And and there can be multiple reasons to to do that, right? Uh, If you file a case too late, if you miss a statute of limitations, then you would file a motion to dismiss to say, judge, look, even if they had a case here, they filed it too late, it can't go through. So... Typically, with a motion to dismiss, when a judge is ruling on a motion to dismiss, they typically don't go out of their way to address the merits of the case. Because really, what you're dealing with in a motion to dismiss is whether or not uh, the case is properly brought in this court. Most of the time, there are some situations, including in Illinois, where you can have a different motion to dismiss where you kind of go into the merits a little bit. But that's not uh, the case in federal courts. It's a failure to claim or failure to state a claim for which relief could be granted, which is what we're saying here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's a a little there's a little quote here. If I can just this is this kind of makes that point. Um, While the court recognized that the prohibitions on genocide are fundamental and binding international law. This was a quote rare incidence where the quote the preferred outcome is inaccessible to the court and it found that it 
it found it lacked power to resolve the case because it implicated executive decision making in the area of foreign policy. So yeah. that's that that's, was that's the... very powerful too, uh, because typically, like like I was saying, with a motion to dismiss, typically no um, what, what what's it called? No court would even go into the merits of the case because again. What is being decided in a motion to dismiss are not the credibility of the allegations themselves. It's not the credibility of the evidence being presented most of the time. It is simply, do we have the authority to hear this case or not? So why am I going to learn all the details of this case and shit and even write about them if I'm a judge, if it's a motion to dismiss, if I don't need to? You know, if your case is filed too late, I'll just say, oh, yeah, motion to dismiss granted because your case is filed too late. If I don't have jurisdiction, uh, meaning that another court is the proper authority to actually hear this case, then I would say, yeah, another court, uh, like, get the fuck out of my court. Go to Bob's court down the street. That's that's the actual court you should be in. I, I don't have the authority to hear this case. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Lysol just said, jurisdict these nuts. <laughs> but, which is great. But, but it's, it, why do I mention that in a motion to dismiss? Because, the fact that no judge has to actually touch the merits of the case means that when they are deciding to go outside of that and to actually touch the merits of the case, regardless, even even knowing that they're going to dismiss it, uh, that's a judge that wants to make a statement about something. That's they're they're trying to put something in in the legal record that says, "Hey, uh, we think if this case were allowed to go through." it would be just and fair and and there's a case being made that genocide is being committed. And that line in particular, there are rare cases in which the preferred outcome is inaccessible to the court. Like that's someone, uh, you could tell the judge on the other side of that, if they had the power, would uh, absolutely rule that there's a genocide going on there. But I do think that's fascinating. Of course, it, it has no legal precedent, no binding effect, but uh, that's a incredible find amanda well i just wanted to make sure you knew about it because i think there's probably more cases that have been filed this one was filed in middle of november and there's probably other cases that are that are yeah. not being covered by mainstream media because they don't know to look for it or they're not they're intentionally not dude i should try to clerk for this guy that's what i should do I should contact this judge and say, let me work for you. Let me write your decisions because this is sick. I actually like this a lot. I think uh, I think the judge might be a she. Uh, Jeffrey S. White. Oh, no. Je no, Jeffrey uh, White. No, no, you're right. I yeah. thought I saw a different name, but is White this, is, the, is the judge. Just a judge. That's cool. Dude, you should come to San Francisco. Sure. With me and Lysol. Yeah, let's get weird. <laughs> Let's, get, let's get to a job with Justice White. I should, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, we'll see. Man, appointed by Bush, too. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, it's, yeah, there's some interesting politics that are going to be happening, don't you think, as, as the, as this continues? Yeah, absolutely interesting politics. I think, I mean, I, I think the main, the most interesting part is, um, and I don't know if you, you were here for this part, but I, I don't see the, the the U.S. and Israel are currently actively trying to 
demean the UN because it's really the only way out for them um, is to delegitimize the, the, the UN. So this, these allegations that the UN are WA are committing terrorist acts or they're, you know, they had like two terrorists in their ranks. These are calculated, I think, to, uh, to create the foundation for the United States to make the argument that the United Nations is no longer a legitimate organization and to, to pull out. Cause I, I don't see how else you get there, but, um, uh, Oh, Amanda took off. Oh, Lysol took off too. Where, what's going on? Did I get them out? Okay. Let me, let me bring Lysol up real quick. Um, and Amanda, I don't know if you're done, but, uh, thanks for calling in. Uh, really great case too. Lysol, what's going on? What, uh, what were we snacking on today? Oh, I, I went. I went back to the original. The uh, the the little sharks. Oh hell yeah! Okay. <laughs> like oh, what was it about them? They were so good, and then I was like, with yeah. great great white sharks. And I was probably I was too young to remember the pre great white sharks phase, but maybe that was what ushered in the golden era of uh, soccer snacks. Yeah, yeah, they, they were the shit. Uh, damn, we lived through the best era of snacks. Yeah, it, the '90s was really peak snack when capitalism was at its finest. <laughs> Before they decided snacking was 35 flavors of Oreos. Right? Yeah, yeah. Kids yeah. these days. Yeah, no, right? I don't, I don't know. Hey, apropos of nothing, I was wondering. So, one of the times you were hosting a show, we were talking about um, legislation to potentially allow people that were on strike to collect unemployment benefits. And you were like, Oh shit, I should like look yeah. into that in this state. I think I know the person to talk to. And yeah, not trying to put pressure on, you know, you're a busy man, but I was just yeah. curious if that ever led to anything or if you ever I'm putting it back up. on my list. I'm putting it back on my list. I totally slipped my mind. If I don't write stuff down what's happening, I will forget, but that is actually, uh, yeah, but that, I thought that was already on the ballot and not on the ballot, but it was on, uh, I thought they'd been rejected. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Newsom vetoed it. Yeah, well then, fuck. Well, well, so we can't get it through legislatively. You'd have to get it through from like a ballot initiative. And I oh, I was just that. assuming that your state would be easier to get through than my state. We're talking about doing it in my state. That's yeah. why. Oh, okay. Yeah, not like in a federal thing. You're like, oh, okay. I, I think because I think New York passed, put something up too, and you're like, wow, I think I think that could work here. Yeah, just kind yeah. of like you know, and like like a spread the labor tactic type thing. Because I think the last last show I talked to you on was we were talking about the UAW and Sean Fain and stuff. Yeah, 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 that's right. Where uh, uh, union? Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. Thanks for reminding me of that. I'm I'm gonna uh, actually look into it now and and report back. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Other than that, I, I would say good show, but I didn't catch much of it. Um, and I have pleasantries like, hey, how you doing? How you been? But you, I know you've been going for three hours. so <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I'll be back. Let's catch up more on the pleasantries uh, next week. And uh, yeah, because it'd be cool to just shoot the shit, catch up with people because it's, it's been a while. Um, but I'm going to be talking more about just the ICG ICJ case, I think. Uh, I've promised Derek for a long time that I'm going to do a show on uh, an agenda for peace. from the Boutros, uh, Boutros, Boutros Gali thing? Yeah, which yes. I've never read. I just ordered it. So um, we're, we're, I'm going to get it and, and go over that. Uh, that's been a long time in the, in the running. And then let me, uh, you know, 
get the shit going don't over promise Derek I kind of told him I'd write a prequel to 1984 and I'm trying to back out of it and if you follow up <laughs> on your promises then I gotta follow up on my promises that's true Derek gets us to uh, gets people to make a lot of promises he's he's uh it's a Derek charm. <laughs> we, we were talking about crowdfunding to send him to primary states to just kind of like stump at local bars and stuff. That would be sick, actually. He's working on his two minute speech. <laughs> uh, he goes for five minutes and he apologizes like, for going too long. He's got he's got a whole thing or something. Then, I don't know. I I'm, like his, I'm his bodyguard slash DJ, DJ action president, and um, yeah. he also wants yeah. to play roles. We just got to find a way to pay for the the bus fare and the hotel rooms. We'll figure it out. Let's crowdfund that shit. We can we can get it. For sure. for sure, man. I'll throw down. All right. Well, Lysol, always a pleasure. Uh, I will report back on the unemployment stuff too, and um, hope everyone learned some things. I hope, uh, you know, every time whenever I do these like legal shows too, I, I never know how much people are going to give a shit. But I, I feel like this one was important. Uh, again, uh, next week uh, we can talk more about it. If you have any other questions. Uh, that decision, as I said, in the uh, regarding the genocide allegation, uh, allegations between Ukraine and Russia, a decision is coming down on Friday uh, regarding uh, Russia's preliminary objections to uh, that, uh, some of those charges. So uh, that's going to be big. It's going to be huge. It's, um, I'm looking forward to reading it, and I might, just, I, I might just make this my beat for a while, just international uh court of justice stuff but uh yeah thank totally, you man i remember yeah. you you were talking about um you were talking about china getting involved and how big that could be so I look it could be really big and i i honestly think this could be an opportunity for china to really uh cement its place and its influence in the un um because it we're gonna, we're gonna see what happens they're, they're usually much uh china usually likes to just contain their own shit uh and kind of mind their own beeswax for the most part internationally. I mean, there's some stuff they're doing. I, I don't want to, that's an over overly broad statement, but when it comes to these, like, you know, filing an intervention motion, when two countries are accusing each other of a genocide, China's kind of like, nah, y'all got it. You know, they're usually not trying to make a record of that stuff to, to get involved in the court, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'm going to, I'm going to take up some more stuff, but uh Yep, I I gotta go uh, hang out with my girlfriend before she uh, kicks me out of the house. So <laughs> I'll see y'all later. Uh, see y'all next week. Uh, thanks for coming by, and uh, it's good to be back. All right, take care. Good talking. Peace out, life.